Hey, this is Ken Art of Wake Up Carolina. Because we're in such demand, we decided to do a podcast. Well, actually, it's like an archive of a previously broadcast show on the radio. So it's not a podcast. Well, it is presented as a podcast. So invite people to join us for whatever it is you just said they can join us for. That's right. Enjoy, and it starts now. Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, April the 4th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. You're not in there by yourself this morning. That is true. We have a new addition. You notice. Yes, we do. To the cast of Wake Up Carolina. Yep, true. I- I'll allow you to introduce. Okay. That'll be fine. Although he can't hear you. He doesn't have headphones I on. I get but, that. I get that. But Mike, we're, all, we're already talking about you. So um, anyway, yes, uh, I'm in the, we've set the stage before little behind the scenes you know whatever inside baseball as if anyone cares but continue right right exactly but you know ever since randy left uh i've been over here in the control randy randy cato cato yeah okay yeah okay exactly (laughs) (laughs) really that's right we know him as cato um but ever ever since he left i've been over here in the control room pushing the buttons and running the board and all that technical stuff and so yes we have uh mike yano joining us so mike uh here's your big debut on uh, in radio in network radio here in South Carolina, say hi. Hey, how are you? That was hey, how are you? Yeah, hey, how are you? <laughs> Good deal. Good deal. Welcome <laughs> aboard, Mike. And um, you'll you'll find us as aggravating on day one hundred as you found us yep. um, on day number one. Yep, We've true. had some technical difficulties here this morning, but the ref has all, all that um all that straightened out. Um, Mike will, Monday morning. Mike will find out. Our listeners don't just expect an answering of the phone. That pleasantries need to be exchanged. How is mom? How is dad? Um, is there anything we can do for you up here at um or over here at Wake Up Carolina? See, I, l- so, I learned um, that uh, I I didn't know because it was all business. You know, I'm I'm stepping over here in, into this uh, into the control room trying to produce and play a co-hosting role, mm-hmm. right? And you know, people call and I take their name and where they're calling from and I say, okay, stand by, and I put them on hold to get them in line for the next available time. And uh, as I found out, apparently they're used to Randy Cato having been very friendly with them and answering, how's, how's your mom doing? How's your family? And and they thought that I was just being very short and not as, uh, I guess, not as friendly well, when, as Randy. When, and I, I didn't mean anything by it, of course. I'm just taking care of business. When we interviewed President Trump, we were told we'd have him for 10 minutes. Right. Cato had him for five. <laughs> I know. I mean, Cato I compared him to Jesus and all these other <laughs> sorts of things. And he was, he was praying for the former president's. Um, I don't know whatever it is he prayed for uh, over Trump, but, but anyway, um, yeah, we'll find out whether or not Mike is more of the uh, of the rev model of um, I'm not screening the calls, but answering the phone, and getting in line, or whether he's more of the um, the chummy old Cato model <laughs> of wanting to know how mom and dad and everybody else is doing. He, he said he's going to be like like me for now. Okay, but, there but, you go. But he's going to be learning. So I would ask our listeners to you know. Uh, cut him a break, you know, give him a chance. They will cut him a break if he asks how mom's doing. Right. Now, yeah, if he just, does not ask how mom's doing, there will be no break cut. <laughs> I can right. assure you of this. I learned that. I did the hard way. <laughs> um, so a lot of things kicking over the weekend. I actually did a lot of um, a lot of homework on the, uh, on the show, but it's a sports field weekend. Um, the biggest story of the weekend, I guess, is um, Coach K oh. coaching his last basket. What is I, that? I thought you were going with a totally different biggest story of the weekend. Totally different. Would have been your Lady Gamecocks are the national champions, my friend. Yeah, they are. Again, um, congratulations yeah. to the Lady Gamecocks. <laughs> but if you ask the sporting world, what is a bigger story? It's Coach K and North Carolina, Duke and North Carolina, in an epic and classic basketball game. I am much. I, I'm a much bigger 
college football fan than basketball fan, but I did wait with great anticipation for Saturday night. I was a little disappointed it wasn't the early game because I could get to bed when I normally do. But I had to stay up until about 11 because the NBA, excuse me, the Duke um, North Carolina game didn't start until 9. But it was as advertised. I mean, it was classic, epic, um, a, a couple of missed free throws and a dagger in the heart of Coach K's coaching career by um, a North Carolina guard. Um, just two celebrated blue bloods of college basketball going mano a mano for 40 minutes was um I guess the great coach K said after the game and I thought it was so prophetic and profound the way he said it he said you know I've always envisioned my last game ever coaching a bunch of college kids they're in the locker room crying now, now I always imagined they'd be crying tears of joy and excitement and exhilaration um my locker room's full of tears right now, but it's not exhilaration. It's not joy. It's not, but, um, but, but a, what are the epic college coaching careers of all time? Um, when I think of the Mount Rushmore of college basketball coaching, I don't remember Adolph Rupp. I mean, I've read enough to understand how big a deal he was in the game of college basketball. I remember a little bit of John Wooden have read books by Wooden on discipline and the orderly way of which you live your life. Um, I do remember Bobby Knight. Um, Bobby Knight's a little bit like Joe Walsh, right, Rev? You get all of Bobby Knight. You get the good, the Ooh, bad, yeah. the ugly, the basketball genius that was Coach Knight. Um, the, um, the guy that got out of control at times was also Coach Knight. Um, and then you go to Dean Smith, and then you go to Mike Krzyzewski, um, I, don't, I don't know who belongs on Mount Rushmore. We've always said in the in the in the Mount Rushmore of rock and roll, there's Elvis and the Beatles, and we can debate the other 20 bands that deserve to be considered for those two. I think John Wooden, without question, is is the uh, I don't know the um, the George Washington or Thomas Jefferson of Mount Rushmore. We can debate whether the other two should be uh, well, Lincoln. Lincoln would be obviously, yeah. There's only one we could debate on Mount Rushmore, the real Mount Rushmore. That would be um, uh, Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Yeah, but I mean, he was the guy who commissioned Mount Rushmore. Sure, let's include me in with those Lincoln, Jefferson, and Washington <laughs> um, guys. But but I think you know John Wooden would be the guy that you would say, yeah, no question, Wooden belongs there. Rupp, Knight, Dean Smith, Coach K. Where's McGuire fit uh, in that list? Yeah, he would be amongst the twenty or twenty-five to be considered, but he ain't Coach K. I mean, Coach K's won multiple, multiple national championships. And um, d d do I believe he is all he's made up to be? No. I don't think you win in college basketball. Being as, um, as full of his uh, – let me say this the right way. Um, th there's not a lot of room in college basketball for integrity. I mean, I'm sorry. There's just not. The game is heavily influenced by AAU camps and deals and, and shoe contracts. Um in fact, Bobby Knight refuses to respect the way John Wooden did it because he can't, he says Wooden had a couple of boosters who were just buying players and getting them a, a way to figure out Alcindor and some of these other kids. Um, Knight has a lot to say about Wooden and his recruiting advantages. And I think we've um, we placed Mike Krzyzewski on a, on a pedestal, and he should be when it comes to coaching and winning in college basketball. But to propose him as some Boy Scout and a person of decency and honor and integrity above reproach, you don't win as many college basketball games he did in, in, the, in the varying ways in which college basketball progressed or, or transgressed, if you believe in um, honor, integrity, and virtue. But, um, I mean, I think he figured out a way to do what he had to do 
we, we know Dean Smith in North Carolina created classes specifically for kids, you know, to make sure they stayed eligible and, and ready to play. And I think Duke has probably done some similar things to that. Uh, Duke, one of the most prestigious academic universities in America, figured out a way to land five-star after five-star after five-star. Maybe they just found the five-stars who made 1600 on the SAT. I kind of doubt it. I think they laxed some of the, uh, I don't know, the entrance requirements on what it takes to get in into Duke. But that is the big story over the weekend. Now, obviously, the Gamecocks winning a women's basketball championship. I would call that, Rev, the formal passing of the, of the baton. Geno's won 11 at UConn, uh, been the dominant. He's been the John Wooden of women's college basketball. Um, and, and Coach K didn't rival Wooden. Dean Smith didn't rival Wooden. Um but but Gino probably did. I think he's won eleven national championships. He's never lost a national championship game. Um, the Gamecocks beat him. I think they've won three of the last four. Ah, yeah, three of the last four in their head-to-head meetings with UConn. Um, what did we say for a long time? There's a two-headed monster running college football, Alabama and Clemson. It kind of morphed into a one-headed monster. Clemson's still a really really good program, but Alabama's kind of separated themselves from everybody else. Um, it looks to me as a Gamecock fan that they've kind of distinguished themselves and separated themselves from everybody else. Um, newsflash, they've got the number one recruiting class coming in this next year, uh, projected to have the number one recruiting class the year after that. Here's the, here's the question I would pose. Now, I'm, I'm going to be candid on the record here. I would swap the two women championships and the two baseball championships for two football championships. You hear me, Clemson? I'll give you four <laughs> for two because I would much rather be national championship in college football. But you can't neglect the fact that somebody wins a championship. I don't care what sport it is. I mean, if you're doing frog jumping, you know, or tiddlywinks, you're trying to win championships. And uh, and Don Staley has proven to be as good as there is in, uh, in recruiting and building a winning program that eventually wins championships. Now, here's the controversy. Something happened was it Friday night? Yeah, something happened yeah. Friday night. Um, they argue it's a scheduling conflict, but there have been many, many games that the Staley regime has chosen not to be in the arena, but the national championship is played. The national the, anthem. The national uh, anthem is played. Um, and that's kind of a um, that's a controversial issue. Uh I've I've had I'd, a thousand, I'm a, a hundred Gamecock fans text me. Uh, since then, you know, what do you think of it? Doesn't matter what I think of it. That's what they choose to do. Uh, they've got this persona. And I don't know if you saw a shirt last night. It's at WBB versus everybody with a block C. Dawn's convinced um, her girls that these are, um, these, are, these are times to express yourself and however you feel proper or appropriate, and it's you against the world. I mean, if you're willing to step out and express yourself in this controversial fashion, it's you against the world. And it's kind of worked. I mean, his, her girls play with an attitude. They, they play with a certain demeanor. That doesn't hurt. They're all 6'10". <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. I've, I've not watched them play much, but I did watch last night a good bit. My daughter was home, and um, I said, hey, Libby, this isn't complicated. This is women Shaquille O'Neal basketball. I mean, there's just two girls bigger than anybody else. I mean, if they want the ball... You're going to have a hell of a time taking it from them or getting it from them. 
And I'm talking about these two giants, these two Shaquille O'Neal girls they had. You know, but I did. I said, this is women Shaquille O'Neal basketball. These two girls, they just stand under the backboard and they just block everybody out. They're just bigger than anybody else. But um, but that would have been the controversy, you know, whether or not. I heard some Gamecock fans um, saying they're pulling for UConn. I never got there. I did send an edgy text to my family just to kind of provoke them a bit. <laughs> but um, if there's Carolina across their jersey – or Gamecocks across their jersey, I'm pulling. Now, now, I heard, I didn't see, I didn't watch the beginning of the game, and I did tune in a little after the beginning of the game because I watched it, and I was pulling for the girls. I mean, I was real happy for them at the at the end of the game as well. But but I the, read... The, the, them, two, them two I'm talking about ain't girls. They're women. They're full, <laughs> well, you know. They're full-grown women. <laughs> Women's basketball. That's yeah, right. Okay. I shouldn't call them girls. Well, Women's I did. I, I'm trying to... Yeah. Get it rolling here early Monday morning. <laughs> but I, I did read some posts that uh, that both teams were on the court for the national anthem last night. Yeah. So for what it's worth. Well, I mean, I think Dawn's a little bit like a honey badger. <laughs> she don't care. <laughs> right. I mean, she just doesn't yeah. does not care very much. Um, I, I've heard stories from from insiders in Columbia when they evaluate coaches. The AD's job every year annually. It's probably the same with Clemson or Alabama or Georgia, wherever. You know, the coaches are, are evaluated by the athletics director, and when they evaluate the basketball coach or the baseball coach or the football coach, they, they, you know, they're coaches. I mean, they're not administrators. They're, they're not normally as organized. Saban would probably be the, the exception. I mean, I would imagine Nick Saban would be, you know, just as prepared as anybody ever has been. But they say when Dawn walks in the room, she knows the best eighth grader in Arizona, the best ninth grader in Texas, the best seventh grader. Um, she t- She's told... Some of these folks, or I've heard, she sat in the room with a briefcase full of information, and she says, you know, Gino, uh, th- this girl's sister played for Gino back in the 90s, so we're going to kind of in a disadvantage, but here's what I think we can do. Um, I know this to be true. There was a female basketball player at a high school in Philadelphia, and Alshon Jeffrey, who was playing for the Eagles at the time as a football NFL wide receiver, said don't aggravated him to no end about calling this girl or doing something to try to lure this girl away from, you know, whomever she was being, probably UConn, up that way and um, and uh, and get her to come down down south. She's just always working it. And whether you're a fan of, college, of women's college basketball, I'm not. I mean, I'm just not a big fan of women's college basketball. And once again, I would give the two baseball and the two women basketball championships for the two football championships Clemson has. But, but it, you know, it's a national championship, and that means you're the best there is. And if you're going to play a sport – and you're going to commit to play in a sport, then try to be as good at it as you can. And um, and she's built a a brand. I, I did see this, Rev, in the two games that I watched. She had a Gucci T-shirt. I texted my daughter, how much is that T-shirt Dawn's wearing cost? <laughs> and my daughter would know this um, because all 19-year-olds know that a Gucci T-shirt costs $800, right? And then, and then Friday night, she's wearing a Louis Vuitton. So some sort of pullover. So I texted my daughter, and my daughter said, that's well over a grand. I mean, that's well over a thousand well, bucks. She can afford it. Well, I mean, she's making two and a half million dollars a year coaching women's. I think she may be making two point nine million dollars a year coaching women's basketball. That loses about five million dollars annually. So there, <laughs> that, that's the wise investment. You pay someone two and a half million dollars to win a championship in, in a sport that loses about five million dollars um, a year. I want to. I want to stay in the vein of USC. Something happened last weekend that we didn't touch on, didn't talk about. But um, we've had multiple conversations. Jim comes to mind when he talks about the way we pick judges and should we change the way we pick judges. I thought a lot about this over the weekend. Judgeships in South Carolina 
and trustees at universities in South Carolina. Um, and the University of South Carolina will be the most controversial. It's the flagship university. It's got a big, big board. It's got board members emeritus. It's got the governor as a um, as a presiding member. It's got um, the secretary of education is not elected, but they are a member. So right now, Molly Spearman is a board of the University of South Carolina. Henry McMaster is a board member at USC. It's a complicated board, and it leads to very often complication leads to dysfunction. And I've got an interesting idea or concept that I think would help better manage the affairs of the University of South Carolina. I said it one day over the air that that I've always heard growing up as a kid, you know, Clemson does this, and Clemson does that, and Clemson does something else. The Gamecocks have this, and the tie, and it, it always it was always political. You know, the reason the Gamecocks can't do X, Y, or Z is it's too John Brown political. Well, I mean, the state house is on the campus of the University of South Carolina. It is by far more political than any other university in this state by its very nature. I mean, it's it's the flagship university. It's a big old school that encompasses, the campus encompasses our state house. So it's going to be a lot more complicated. Clemson has, I think, 13 board members of the Gamecocks. Or, or University of South Carolina has about 20 or 21 board members. Now, now, some are not voting members. I think there's 18 voting members. But I've got a theory that I want to try to advance on the other side. Here's what I want to say. Congratulations to North Carolina. Congratulations to Coach K. And congratulations to the Lady Gamecocks who win a basketball championship and tick off about half their fan base all of the time. How do you win a national championship and tick off your fan base? Yeah, I can tell you how. You don't come to the arena and stand for the national mm-hmm. anthem. They Take a it. break. Yeah, it takes Mondays to make Fridays. We'll be back in just a minute. Blue Line Shooting Center is today's sponsor and specialize in beginner instruction with qualified instructors to help you become a skilled handgun shooter. They even have private lessons. Blue Line Shooting Center is open six days a week to fit your busy schedule. Rebel Auction Company presents a huge farm equipment liquidation auction. Thursday, April 7th, 9 a.m. sharp. The estate of Steve and Wilhelmina Suggs, along with other estates included. Auction location is... 843-661-0937 is our number. What are you motioning for? Well, I... I was testing the phone lines okay. during the break, and I wanted you to make sure that you knew there wasn't a yeah, call. Yeah, okay. It was Got me. you. It Got was. you. Yeah, testing the phones. We had some sort of um, an issue this morning that you think you've gotten uh, rectified. Yeah, it tested okay. Okay. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. So last week, we didn't talk about this at all. Um, we had a very eventful screening committee. Um, a, a very aggressive screening process of some of the board of trustee members of the University of South Carolina. They've been in some um, uh, some hot water. There have been some things said about the way things have been done that a lot of the the, the consuming public, and I'm talking about those that would be somewhat insiders. I mean, if you're a Gamecock fan, you're, you're frustrated by the, the efficiency of which it appears Clemson runs its university and athletics programs and the inefficiencies of which it looks like the Gamecocks and the University of South Carolina are run. Um I can attest in the first person. I'm somewhat informed because I've confirmed trustees at USC and Clemson in these joint sessions that I presided over. I'm not name dropping. I'm just saying, listen to me for a second about this. A lot of things I talk about on this show, I have no credibility at all. I just try to convince you that I know what I'm talking about. 
Um, sometimes it works. Sometimes it does not work. Sometimes people call in and challenge things I say over the air. Um, and, and you should. I mean, I express myself in a very opinionated, semi-factual sort of way. Um, I presided over a couple of joint sessions where we elected board members at USC and Clemson and Coastal and Francis Marion and Wofford and Furman and, and judges are appointed, or excuse me, confirmed in that fashion and manner. I want to touch on two things this morning that I think are very interesting and, and are worthy of consideration. And I may try to talk to Philip and Jay and Mike Rickenbaugh about this. Um, if we can get our Sumter delegation or Orangeburg delegation um, to listen a bit, uh, maybe they can tell us why we can't do it this way. But, but the, a lot of the issues at the University of South Carolina hinge around, and I think Clemson fans would be interested in this as well. Clemson has 13 members on their board. I mean, it's the Land Will Trust of James Clemson. That's the way it was. Uh, they got lifetime appointments. We could argue. I mean, if I wanted to be a pain in the rump Gamecock fan, I could argue that the lifetime appointees are unconstitutional. But that's the way the Clemson family or Mr. Clemson wanted it when he did the land grant and the wheel and the last, you know, I mean, that's the way he set up uh, the university. Go to South Carolina, very different. 20, I think 21 or two board members, um, 16, uh, there are 16 judicial circuits in South Carolina. In other words, there is a, there is one resident circuit judge who maintains an office in each of the judges' home county. So we've got 16 um, circuits in South Carolina, judicial circuits in South Carolina. There's one USC trustee per judicial circuit. And then you've got a, a couple of governor's appointees. And then you've got the secretary of education. And you've got the governor, him or herself. So it gets to be about 21 or so members of the USC board. That's a lot. I mean, that's a big, cumbersome way to, um, to manage and, and govern or police the affairs of a major statewide university. Clemson, once again, 13, that's probably a good number. I mean, that's, you know, you can get, um, I don't want to go into the details about, you know, of the 13 voting members at Clemson, only one's a lawyer. Of the 18 voting members at South Carolina, nine are lawyers. Lawyers are not paid to go along and get along. What are law lawyers paid to? Argue. To argue over conflict. I mean, that's what they're doing. I mean, they, you know, the majority of lawyers who do it for 20 years and get tired of doing it, they don't get tired of the money. You know what they get tired of? That they're not handing out lottery tickets. Every part of their life is involving conflict, and they get tired of the conflict. I've got two lawyers now who are burnt out. The reason they're burnt out, I always say, hey, man, you're making good money. You got. seems to me you play golf when you want to, go to the game when you want to. He says, yeah, but, man, everybody that comes to see me is mad at someone else. I, I want to <laughs> find a little more um, – um, I don't know. Uh, I want to find a nicer place and a less hostile and a less conflicting place to go to work. But stick with me on USC because I think I've got an idea that somebody should seriously consider. Um, you got 16 judicial circuits in South Carolina. You got one trustee per judicial circuit. Why don't we do this? Why don't we do away? They're talking about reforming the way we elect this board. Why don't we do away with the one trustee per judicial circuit and go to congressional districts. We've only got seven congressional districts. But, but, but here's, the, here's the problem. And, and I've heard that the, the negative, the naysayers on why we can't do it that way. Because remember the disproportional political representation I've tried to talk about, you know, where all the political mm -hmm. power will lie. We'll be in Charleston, Oregon, Greenville County. Those are the fast-growing counties of our state. Let's do this. Let's take the 7th congressional district as an example. But that's our district. The majority of us live in. Now, Sumter and Orangeburg are in different districts, but the majority of people listening to my voice right now, I got to believe, live in the 7th Congressional District. Here's what I would do. 
I would take the seven, the seven congressional districts, and I would have an A and a B appointee. In other words, I would divide it. I would say it wouldn't be city and rural. It wouldn't be urban and rural. It wouldn't be Myrtle Beach and Florence, but that's where we would probably end up. You would have a trustee from the Myrtle Beach area and a trustee from the Florence area. Now, the devil's in the details on how to divide it up. Do you do population? I mean, obviously, uh, one of these districts will be more sparsely populated and bigger geographically than the other district. But if you've got seven congressional districts, you've got two representatives per congressional district, and you divide them into an A and a B. The A would be the urban. In other words, Myrtle Beach would be a much smaller area within that congressional district, but they would have a representative because of the population. And then you get outside and Florence and Darlington and some of the other places would have a, a representative as well. And you would have two. That gives you 14. And then the governor, that's 15. And, and maybe that maybe that's it. I mean, maybe you don't like uh, superintendent of education. If the superintendent of education needs to be on the board at USC, they need to be on the board at, at, at Clemson. They need to be on the board at at um at Coastal Carolina, some of the private schools we can debate whether they need to be or not. But the public institutions, I mean, why why does Molly or excuse me, why does the superintendent of education reside on one board and not any of the others? Doesn't make any sense to me there. So that's what I would propose: take the congressional districts, divide those geographically, um, population wise. That would get a little bit complicated. But I mean, we walk chew gum at the same time, and instead of having sixteen judicial circuits. You would have seven congressional districts. You would still have um, a proportional representation because someone, as I said, an A and a B appointee, and the number goes from 21 to 15. And that gets more in line with Clemson's. Clemson's board does a good job of managing the affairs of that university. And they've, they've got, I think, 13 or 14. I think it may be 14 uh, members on that board. So seven times two is 14, right, Pamplico? Seven times two is 14, plus the governor, there's 15. And that would be a manageable number. That's far fewer. It doesn't seem like a lot, but that's um that's a far more manageable board than if we leave it uh, the way it is now with 21 or 22 members and only 18 um, voting. Now, I would, I would leave it where all 15 of those members I uh, do indeed vote. And I just think you get better representation. I think you get a smaller board. Um, I, I'm not saying the politics to get, you'll never take the politics out of USC. I mean, forget trying to do that. You're not going to take the politics out of Clemson. The state house is sitting on the campus of Clemson. If the state house was on the campus of Clemson University, it would be the political university in South Carolina and, and South Carolina. So, you know, maybe the better thing to do if you're a Gamecock fan is um, make a movement to move the state house. You know, maybe that's the better thing to do. Let's build a state house on the campus of Clemson <laughs> and let all the senators and, and House members go to Clemson to transact the uh, the affairs of our state, the political affairs of our state. So, um, what, so there, what, I was going to say, and I, I read a little bit about this and reading the stories about the, the USC board recently. Uh, what do you say about the, uh, the people that complain that some of the powerful people in the General Assembly – that are the loudest voices um, critical of USC and the current board configuration are diehard Clemson people. Well, I mean, it's true. I mean, it's true. Dick Hartputlian was the biggest critic of the USC screening, and Dick's a big Clemson fan. Uh, Senator Hartputlian, I'm sorry. See, see if I were, you, you, got, you know, we, we're talking about in, in the Republican ranks, should we be argumentative or not? I mean, we've kind of debated that. I've got a bit of, a, of information here on Peggy Noonan and a story she wrote in the Wall Street Journal Friday of, um, Friday of last week. But here's the deal. 
Um, so, so our, uh, I mean, I got two buddies of mine who got raked over the coals pretty good. You know, Dr. Doran Smith, Dr. Eddie Floyd, both are dear friends of mine, lifelong friends, um, have been, you know, trusted friends and advisors to me over the years. They got raked over the coals pretty good by Dick Hart Pootlian. I would have probably not referred to Senator Hart Pootlian as Senator Hart Pootlian. When I ask another question, let's say Harpootlian had, had, had beat up on Dr. Dorn a bit or beat up on Dr. Floyd a bit, I would have probably, in the next round of questions, when another senator had asked me, you know, because some of these guys are more friendly than others to the cause or to the to the university, and there's a Clemson-Carolina dynamic at the State House. I mean, I'm sorry, there just is. Um, I mean, I'm not going to name names, but I know there are three or four or five senators um, who went to Clemson, who loved Clemson, who would do everything they could to hurt South Carolina. I mean, there, there is no doubt in my mind Now there are Gamecock senators who would do everything they could to try and hurt and hurt Clemson. Ultimately, it's not your responsibility, but but you bleed garnet or you bleed orange. I mean, you say that around here. Uh, I bleed orange. I bleed garnet. But I would have probably, after Senator Harpootley and had aggressively um, – and I mean, it's his job. I mean, he's, he's on the screening committee, and you got to get screened out of that committee. There's, uh, I think, eight members on the committee, and, um, and there's com- some concern as to whether these people will get screened out or not. But when Harpootley, in an aggressive fashion, as a Clemson fan, goes after some of these USC Board of Trustees, I would have probably referred to him as Alex Murdahl's attorney. I mean, I probably wouldn't <laughs> refer to him, uh, refer to him <laughs> as <laughs> Senator Harpootley. And I would have said, well, you know, the, the, the question that Alex Murdahl's attorney asked me a second ago uh, kind of <laughs> leads me to this. I mean, you, you can't get there and you can't stand there and be pushed around um, just because they're on one side of the podium and you're on the other. So, yes, I mean, of course, that was um, it was very intentional. I mean, Senator Harpootley has always tried to to harm the University of South Carolina. Now, truthfully, he had some some some. Um, I mean, there were a lot of valid claims he made. There were a lot of valid arguments he made. Um, a lot of this centers around on the communication that some of the trustees have with the athletics director. I think the most interesting question that Senator Harpootley imposed was, how often do you communicate with athletics director Ray Tanner? And they all said, fairly often. But but we're managing the university. And then uh, Senator Harpootley, because he's a really smart guy. He said, how often do you talk with the head of the chemistry department? Or the head of the, um, the the tourism department, or the head of the parks and recreation department. Uh, we never talk to them. We, we, we don't. We don't ever talk to them about much of anything. Uh, and you know what he's. I mean, the inference is they're trying to strong arm some of the issues within the athletics department. Um, there's a there's a there's a, a, a an overwhelming dynamic in this state. Some of you think you know how intense it is. I don't think you do, and it's Gamecock Tiger athletics. I mean, it shouldn't mean that much. It shouldn't matter as much as it did. It shouldn't infiltrate the state house to the point where, you know, you got a Gamecock legislator or a Tiger legislator. I can't express to you how many times somebody came to me, Rev, and said, are we trying to get Senator such and such to vote for this? Yeah, he's not going to vote for that. He's a Tiger. And the next day, are we trying to get Senator such and such to vote for this? Yeah, well, he's not going to vote for that. He's a Gamecock. I mean, you know, and it would be to advance something the university needed. Now, you know, um, more cerebral souls tend to intervene in some of these affairs. And very often I've seen this happen. One of the leaders of the USC board go to one of the leaders of the Clemson board and say, hey, you know, that joint bond review that, that you're going before, we're going to try to help you with our crowd, so to speak, because we're going to try to do something similar next year and we may need some help with your crowd but yeah i mean it's pretty intense and let's be let's be honest here as gamecock fans um the usc board of trustees has left some blood in the water 
I mean, there have been some issues there that have not been very well addressed. The, the Caslin issue and the, um, the hiring of a baseball coach as your AD. And that doesn't appear to be working out as we expected or imagined. Major buyout money for yeah, a football you, coach. There you go. A lot of buyout money out there. You know, it is it just is it um are we the outliers of the SEC and ACC and amongst uh you know athletic programs who make a commitment to win? Um, the data shows no, it's not the case. But uh, yeah, that that you know make the board smaller instead of using the 16th judicial circuits, use the seven congressional districts, uh, two per district. And the governor, that gives you 15. Clemson has 14. And as a Gamecock fan, I can tell you first, I mean, it's just absolutely the Clemson board better governs the university than the University of South Carolina Board of Trustees. And I think it has a lot to do with the size of the board. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a much bigger school and a more complicated animal. But um, they still win the basketball national championship. Hey, here's the question I'll pose. Dabo Sweeney has two national championships. Ray Tanner has two national championships. Don Staley has two national championships. There is no doubt that the football championships are a bigger deal than the the baseball or the women's basketball national championships. Who will end up with more? I mean, Ray's got his two. I mean, Ray will never win his third. If he competed for a third, didn't win it. Dabo may or may not win another. I'll go on the record. You know what the over-under is with Don? Probably five. I mean, when she hangs it up, she will have won... I say either four, five, or six. So if I were doing an over under, that's elite. Oh, I mean that, that's yeah, that's this side of Geno. I mean that's you know that's Pat Summit world. Um, but yeah, I mean I would imagine before Dawn. I mean unless you know she goes to the WNBA or does something. Um, I would imagine as long as she stays in South Carolina, they'll be in the Final Four about every other year, and they'll probably win at least one. I'd predict maybe two or three more championships. Let's take a break. We'll be back. On the other side. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. First caller of this new week. It's Carl. Good morning, Carl. Good morning. Ken, can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. Here you fine. Okay. Um, two things. One, on the representation of the of the South Carolina, University of South Carolina board. Um, I don't see where you, I don't know how you see any logic in what you said where you got the seven districts, congressional districts, and then just um, pick two, kind of figure out how to pick them, that makes no sense. The way they have, if you just, if you just say judicial circuits, those are already um, divided up pretty equitably across the state. And four time, I mean, um, seven times two is 14, and then 16, is just two more than that, and then if you want to just add another person, then that'll get you up to 17. Plus, you'd already have the you know the lines figured out because the the circuits for ORE is our and ORE. I mean, the judicial circuit for ORE is ORE, and then the judicial circuit for Florence is Florence. So I don't, I don't see where that makes any sense. Okay. Um, the second thing is. Um, this whole argument, because you, like I said, you are in you are in this deeper than a lot of people, and this is something I've been saying for years. Um, the, the whole raging political conversation on the black side that is is um, not ever going to vote Republican, and that are fed up with Democrats. Um, of course, I'm in the, I'm on I'm not I'm not I'm in the Republican camp, but that side is saying that. 
they 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 say that the two political factions are one and the same um because they are unified by white supremacy and something that I have been saying for years um but not that not that I make a big deal about it all the time because I mean they I'd be getting in arguments with everybody on on all sides of this when you're doing the um in-state rivalry, particularly for southern um, states, your Alabama, Burm, um, Auburn, um, you know, your Louisiana, I don't know who, what the Louisiana is. But Georgia, Georgia cool. Tech's another one. Yeah, yeah, George, well, it ends up being Georgia, Alabama, but yeah, Georgia, Georgia Tech, and here, and you know, Duke, South, Duke, North Carolina, that one, and then ours, uh, that ends up being an in-house fight between white people. And so um, the, the, the point with that is, is that those folks who are on the, on the black political leadership that are, are trying to uh, destabilize the black vote on the Democrat side because it's not delivering anything for black people but would never vote Republican view something like um, college sports fanaticism as a proxy for white supremacy because though because the, here's the here's the logic if those if, if that school means so much to you and a lot of you didn't even go to that school then how is it that that means so much to you but you'll also say well I don't see color how can you not see color when you are actually a white person and there is actually a history of um, white black antagonism in this state. How can you not be versed and active and at least knowledgeable, if not, you know, a subscriber to white supremacy, but you're a Clemson fan and you never graduated high school, or you are a Carolina fan and you went to, um, you got kicked out of Wofford or wherever. So that is the, um, the argument on this side and is, is one reason why Republicans don't get as far with black people as they probably could um, because we see a lot of this where little things mean everything to y'all and then we process that as well if those little things mean that much to them I know my being black means a lot more that's interesting thank you Carl I don't have time to comment right now but we'll do it on the on the other side interesting uh, not questions, but comments. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 on this Monday morning. Carl's points are very interesting. I mean, I agree with about 90% of what he of what he said. And Carl's perspective is that of an African-American. I'm a white guy. It's always difficult for me to say, I know exactly how you feel. I understand exactly what you're saying because I don't know exactly how you feel. And I don't understand exactly where you're coming from. But But stick with me here for a second, Rev. Imagine if college football, because you've heard me say what about college football from time to time. Now, I do it to be a bit provocative, but there's some truth in what I say when I say college football is. Uh, basically, the, the plantation model or the last plantation model. The, the, the plantation model's last stand. Now, I do that to be provocative, but when you really think about what Carl said and what I've tried to articulate in days gone by, this is where we leave sports 
and delve directly into politics. So at 7.04 this morning, we're leaving sports in the rearview mirror. We're now the world of politics. So imagine a college athletic event where all the participants were white. All the coaches and administrators were black. All the boosters were black. All the fans were black. And the kid on the field is not receiving much in compensation other than the value of a college scholarship. The black ADs are running multi-million dollar businesses. The black boosters are benefiting from the business model that allows free labor to be um, to be exercised. How long would America tolerate that if that was an inversion? In other words, if 87% of the players on the field were white, 87% of the fans in the stands were black, the coach was black, the AD was black, the president was black, how long would we stand for those kids on that field not being um compensated how long would we allow that free labor and i think carl's on to something here um where is college football most popular in the south and midwest that's where it's really the 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 rust belt and the south where's some of the most republican safe havens in all of america so we i mean i'm not saying i've never seen a poll where you know college football fans i've seen a poll about SEC fans and who the most Republican-leaning fan base of the SEC is, it's Alabama. I mean, I've seen that polling. I've never seen a poll about, you know, um, is – now, the NFL fan lives leans more Democrat, but those, those teams are in big urban cities. I mean, they're in the Atlanta Falcons. What, guess where the Georgia Bulldogs are? They're in Athens. Guess where the Atlanta Falcons are? Uh, you see what I'm saying? Um, in Pennsylvania, College Station – is a lot more um, uh, Republican than Pittsburgh is or Philadelphia is. So there's a there's clear lines of demarcation in one or the other. Um, but but think about this: How long would America stand for a sport that was generating enormous revenues for black college presidents, black college athletic directors, black college fan bases, if the kids on the field performing as a workforce were white? I mean, I think that's a very fair and provocative um, dynamic to consider and ponder. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Morning, Breeze. Yeah, good luck getting um, 100,000 black folks to watch 22 white boys play football. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, when, you, when you look at this thing, though, you know, talk about the dealing and so forth, and, you know, you can really get deep into this, but so you're dealing because of, because of white supremacy, and racism. So are you dealing because you don't like the government or don't like the country or, or, or what? It, so what's the point there? What was the dealing? But you're dealing. And, and I, the way I interpret it is you just don't like the country that you're living in. That's paying you millions and millions of dollars and giving you an education. And then, you know, so then you, the flip side of that coin would be, well, why aren't there any, why aren't there any white folks out there playing? Well, then they would say, well, they aren't playing because they aren't good enough. Okay. And then, of course, you got all these racist white people that are paying all of this money to go watch a bunch of black people who they dislike because they're racist. I mean, you know, I mean, some of this stuff doesn't make sense. And then you turn around and say, well, well, we want equity. We want equity. Well, are academic scholarships handed out fairly on equity? You know, or is it fair or is it equitable? It's not fair, but it's equitable. Because do they hand out academic scholarships solely on your academic um, um, qualifications? No, they don't. So I mean, so you know, and and you get you hear this thing, you know, you say it. I've probably said it before. 
Well, I'm, I'm white. Well, you know, I'm kind of white. But, you know, I got some, I got Indian in me, some Spanish, and some Scottish Irish, but really not qualified to talk about black people. I don't know how black people think. But oddly enough, most black people are qualified to talk about me to know just how I think, and that's perfectly okay. I mean, I mean, dang it. I mean, well, it's the old double standard. I mean, I hear what you're saying, the double standard. Um, I don't yeah. know what it's like to walk in an African-American shoes, but, but you know, they're, they're okay in saying they know what it's like to walk in a white guy's shoes. I understand that. I mean, I, I hear a lot about that, read a lot about that. I mean, you know, I'm getting, I mean, and, and while we're sitting there worried about this crap, you know, a bunch of spoiled athletes and spoiled coaches, and, and, and white folks with too much money that can afford to give $100,000 to a university that doesn't even like them. You got dangled the federal government turning around, and I, I, I just saw somewhere they're putting. They sent word down to all the states, pretty much the same thing they did during COVID. Said you doctors better not uh, do anything to stand in the way of children wanting to have their sex changed. Sort of the same thing they told them. Said you doctors better not be prescribing any hydrochloroquine. You better not be prescribing any ivermectin. You better not be prescribing any therapeutics during this COVID. You give them a talk at all, or make them get a vaccine, or let them die. You, you see where I'm going? Mm-hmm. So we're worried about this kind of crap. And then at the same time, coming up here in July, they get ready to open up the border again. And you guys, please explain to me how an extra twenty million or so Mexicans is good for an African American race who are all Democrats. I mean, you know, so we're worried about this stuff. And you got all these um, illegal aliens coming through the border, which we can't afford. Which means there's going to be less money. Less money for for. I mean, you, I mean, you see where I'm going. We're worried about this crap while they're doing everything that that affects black and white alike. You know, and we're all getting screwed while we're worried about a bunch of daggone uh, prima donnas in college sports, for that matter, professional sports. You got these big Democrat cities. Most of these NFL teams are mostly all uh, African American teams. So I guess a bunch of those um, Yankees are white supremacists also. Because you know, you go watch a New York Jets game. You know, you got a bunch of white supremacists in there watching the Jets. You go to watch an LA game, a bunch of white supremacists watching the, the Rams. You know, so I guess I'm the least white supremacist out in the crowd because I don't watch a lot of not a damn one to none of them. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it, my man. Uh, I don't know that I'm worried about it. I think it's interesting conversation. Um, I, I want to go to my judge idea. You ready, Rev? Mm-hmm. And I need you to help me here. So, so Jim has argued, and I think Philip Lowe was here a week before last. On a Friday, um, and Jim called in and um, and posed the question or the scenario of how to better elect judges in South Carolina. Currently, somebody puts their name up for nomination. They go through a screening or vetting process, and out of that comes an up or down vote by the General Assembly. Representative Lowe argued that maybe that's not perfect, but do you really want someone asking the public to vote? For judges, in other words, you want a billboard uh, beside a road, radio advertising. Hey, uh, vote Dave Baker is um, you know, the judge. He'll do right by everybody, and he's fair and unbiased. And you know, somebody else spends a little more money on radio and buys a, a little more video video, uh, video boards or whatever. However, you want to market and advertise yourself via the campaign. Um, maybe we should follow the federal model. I mean, I was thinking about this over the weekend, talking to a buddy of mine. Maybe we should. Um, end up in a place where you can't just put yourself up for nomination. Let, let's say a governor has to uh, nominate you. You go through the screening and vetting to see if you're qualified. If you're qualified, you go before the full body. 
That full body votes on you for a 10-year term. You can run for re-election one time. Now, the second time, you don't have to be nominated by the governor. You've already gone through that vetting and screening. You've already been nominated by a governor. And and the second 10-year term, but we have 20-year term limits on judges. The governor nominates that judge. Uh, once again, you've got a screening committee. Let, let's vet them. Let me make sure they're not child molesters or pedophiles or something worse, you know, murderers or whatever. I mean, you know, we got to make sure they are of sound moral and ethics. And instead of just someone off the street saying, hey, I, you know, I'm tired of being a lawyer. I'd like to be a judge. And you kind of buddy up to some of the House of Representatives and Senators. You, you got to wait on a governor. The governor says, you know, that Dave Baker has been a real sound lawyer in the PD for a long time. Wonder if he has an interest in becoming a judge. So the governor's office calls Dave Baker. Dave Baker drives to the governor's mansion, and you meet about this judge opportunity, this judge opening. And Dave Baker says, yes, governor, I'd be honored to accept your invitation. Um, The screening happens three weeks later. Dave Baker sits down with a four-panel or eight-panel, whatever that number is, of senators and House members, or maybe there's some former judges in there. I don't know. Let's um, let's create a screening committee that is, um, is appropriate. And out of that comes a up or down, you know, Rev gets, as we said when I was in Columbia, he gets screened out. And then his name goes in the, uh, before the full body of the General Assembly, Senate and, and House. And he gets an up or down vote. And when he gets uh, an up vote, he goes for a 10-year term, and he can run one more time. So we have turnover in judgeships. We don't have a judge who's been there 40 or 50 years. I mean, that's some of the problem with the Alex Murdoch. I mean, that's, you know, that they kind of ran the town because they, you know, they, they were the solicitors of that area and their grand, great-grandfather was a solicitor. And, um, you know, somebody texted me this morning, and I've heard it over and over again, is it Murdoch or Murdoch? I mean, I've heard it pronounced both ways. I've heard those say Murdoch. I've heard those say Murdoch. Um, it, I don't know how you get O-C-K out of A-U-G-H. I mean, because everybody in the low country mispronounces it, or we're going to mispronounce it as well. But I've heard it Murdoch. I've heard it Murdoch. Um, I've heard Murdoch. Yeah, I've heard Murdoch most. for the most part. I've heard Murdoch. Uh, but I think Murdoch is a mispronunciation or mispronunciation. I'm sorry. Um, Murdoch is the way I've heard it most times said. But I, once again, I've started said both ways. Um, and the family was very prominent when I was in Columbia. I mean, it was always um, stories of what was going on down in the low country with one of these, um, I don't know, um, ruling dynasties, you know, legal dynasties in some of the, um, some of the backwoods of Hampton uh, County. But what do you, I mean, see, I, I just think that um, the federal model may be the best model to go. Once again, uh, uh, Representative Lowe and I kind of debated, I could take one side, he takes the other. I mean, if you want the public to elect a judge, I could easily argue for that. If you want the General Assembly to elect a judge or select the judge, I could argue that. But what about the federal model, which is kind of a hybrid? That the governor, once again, gets the opportunity to select who he thinks needs uh, or is qualified and ethical and moral and all these other sorts of things. Who's going to make a damn good judge? I mean, that's what, at the end of the day, we all want. Um, and that person, once again, uh, has a 20-year career. Well, if they do a lousy job, they don't have but a 10-year career on the bench as a judge. Um, I just think asking a judge to run every four years is unfair to the judge. I think, you know, 10-year term is appropriate, run for a re-election one time, not having to be nominated by the governor again, but having to get the consensus of the body that is the General Assembly and um, and come up with some sort of scorecard, uh, that, you know, work out the details. But I think conceptually that makes more sense. Um, and I think it's kind of a hybrid model. 
Let's go to the phone. Here's Larry in the PD. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Um, I, I think a couple things. I, I'm not one to, I don't know that I've ever done this, but I'm not one to cry racism a lot. But I think that the reason that the governor doesn't have the power to appoint judges in this state is probably rooted in South Carolina's racist past. That's why we have such a strong legislature and such a weak governor. You are 100 uh, percent right, Larry. You're, okay. you're exactly right. We were, we were scared to death that there might be a black governor. Oh, the horror. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but obviously, I, I, I'd like to think we've outlived that. So I actually would think that that. There's a lot more governor appointing that ought to go on. Um, and in, in terms of uh, anybody running for a judge and being elected at large directly by the public, that is just a step too far. There's never been a great democracy-style government in the world that let everybody vote on everything because that's just where you get nonsense from. We think it's bad when our elected officials do some nonsense, but I promise you we would be running judges that would say, I won't send you to jail for anything, and they'd be getting elected because right now that is the sentiment of our nation, and it's probably not very different in our state. So I would be like, I'll I'll never uh, convict a drug crime ever and just rise to power and become a judge you couldn't get rid of, but I wouldn't be doing anything. So probably a year into it, the governor, if he were strong enough or she were strong enough, would have to remove me because I'd be a horrible judge, but I'd get elected every time. So absolutely no on the at-large election of judges, but I think absolutely yes, uh, that should be the governor's job to appoint and then the legislature's job to, uh, as they say, advise and consent. Larry, should a, should a governor have the right to recall a judge if the judge of the absolutely. governor, okay, does it have to be the judge that was appointed by the governor. In other words, if, if Larry gets elected governor and Larry appoints Dave Baker to be his judge, Dave Baker's on the bench, and then Ken gets elected governor, and Ken says, that guy Larry's put on that bench, he's doing a good job. Should I? What, what sort of control or autonomy should I have in removing that judge that I didn't put on the bench? I think you send them back to the legislature and they have to vote them out in an impeachment hearing. Okay, okay. But I think that I think a governor should be able to bring that forward that's any elected official below the state level in my opinion every every county councilman every auditor every coroner every solicitor the the governor ought to be able to recommend them to be impeached and and the senate uh or the or the congress of the state should be able to vote them back in or back out but i think the governor should have that power and at the core of your argument and mine as well the governor should have more executive authority i mean that's that's in essence what you're arguing okay Fair enough. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it, my man. And that's kind of the point I'm trying to make here. And, and a lot of our governor's limited authorities are, you know, rooted in um, our, our racist past. I mean, it was the the fear. I mean, I, you know, I've read a lot about this, the fear that a, that an African-American would get elected governor. And there's no telling what he or she may do. Um, and as long as we've got the General Assembly over here, um, I love my, my members of the General Assembly. And they know I do. But those guys are kind enough to come in here and make themselves available but, but our state is too legislatively dominated. I mean, I, I believe, and I think there's a fair debate about, should we elect the attorney general? Should we elect the superintendent of education? Should those be gubernatorial appointees? I mean, I think there's a very valid argument about, you know, whether or what should be on a referendum or not. And in essence, that's what Larry's arguing. I serve with a guy on county council here. I love him to death. But he wanted everything to be a referendum. And the reason he wanted everything to be a referendum, he didn't have to be held accountable for anything. 
You know, I mean, anything of consequence, he wanted the public to decide. And I said, man, the public sent you up here to make these sorts of decisions. You can't skirt or shirt that responsibility. But anything that had to do with, with, with consequence, he wanted to farm it out to a referendum. And I said, oh, we were in a representative republic. I mean, it's your job to cast some of those difficult votes. And then you look the voters in the eyes and say, why I did X, Y, or Z. But I think fundamentally we need a stronger governor. And I think in the judicial branch, a governor appointing a, a judge, that judge goes to a screening committee. The screening committee says he's qualified and he's of moral character. That person goes before the full body. That full body elects that person to a 10-year term. They can one, one, they can run one more 10-year term, and then they're out of there. We don't need 40 and 50-year-old judges, excuse me, 40 and 50-year term judges. I mean, we just don't need that. I mean, we need new blood in every system of government, and the, judici- the judiciary is no different than that. And I think 20 years is plenty long enough for someone uh, to maintain their status as a judge. Take a break. Back in just a minute. I don't realize, I mean, I I don't think you folks realize, maybe you do, I don't think you realize how fortunate you are to every morning have someone able to fix so many things (laughs) in such a short period of time. Really? But it really dawned on me during the break, we've already settled what needs to be done with the USC Board of Trustees. Mm -hmm. We've already settled um, that we could come up with a better way to select judges and elect judges here in our beloved state. Uh, and we've done this before 7.30 on a Monday morning, and we didn't get started until about 6.05. I mean, imagine what we could do if we were given autonomy and authority to things that we have no control over. I mean, just let if, us— If you ruled the world, is I mean, what you're turn, saying. Turn us loose on some of these complicated matters <laughs> of manly affairs. Fix everything. And we could fix everything, <laughs> maybe not in one four-hour show— but certainly in two or three, four-hour shows, we could solve all the ills of the world. Now, now Carl said it was dumb. <laughs> Carl said it made no sense. <laughs> the, way, the way he said it, like, your idea makes no sense. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, I know who you are. You're trying hard, so keep trying hard uh, to make the world a better place. I, I just think the judge idea, um, I get the Board of Trustees. I mean, you're not decreasing the number of members, but, but I think you are. I mean, I think it's still a better way to do it, and I think it's interesting to kind of bounce things off one another. Um, I think Larry hit on something that a lot of people are not as familiar with as they probably should be, and that is the very limited authority our chief executive has in the state of South Carolina. Carol, uh, Carol Campbell did some things to reform and, um, and institute a little more control within the, uh, within the government, or excuse me, within the governor's office, um, but you're asking people to acquiesce on power. In other words, the General Assembly has to give up some of its own power. Um, good luck with that. Um, and I would imagine if I remember the General Assembly, you know what? And there was a vote on the table conceptually that said, we're going to take more power from you and give it to somebody that you argue with from time to time. May or may not be in a similar party. Um, I'd probably be a little bit resistant to that as well. Um, but I do believe that's a better way to pick judges. And I think um, I think ultimately a, a chief executive of a state who gets the um, the most votes in a statewide election to be the chief executive officer of that said state deserves a little more ability to govern than the current governor of South Carolina. Um, if you want to know the truth, the governor of South Carolina is probably the maybe the fourth most powerful politician in South Carolina. And I'm talking about statewide. I'm not talking about U.S. office. I'm not talking about a senior senator or Clyburn or somebody like that who's been in Washington a long time and knows where the money is and, and knows how to access some of the funds. I would argue that the chairman of the Ways and Means, 
chairman of the finance and speaker of the house are more powerful than a governor. I'm sure the speaker of the house is. I mean, we could argue about the finance chair and the ways and means chair, but um, how many people voted for the ways and means chair? How many people voted for the finance chair? How many people voted for the um, the uh, the speaker of the house? And then how many people voted for of the governor? So I think we need to be do a rearranging of that dynamic. And I um, mean, I think balanced power. I think you know the the co-equal branches of government is something that should rear its head. And as you pointed out before, uh, the only elected official that has less power than the governor is? The lieutenant governor. <laughs> I can personally attest <laughs> to that. Purple robe, fancy office, couch that belonged to John C. Calhoun, uh, the Columbia Museum will send your art of choice over to your office. Oh. Uh, yeah, I mean, when I was a... Uh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, they sent someone over there, a curator. Uh, they sent someone over there and well, asked well. me uh, what, my, what my preference of art was. And I said, all I know is uh, I'm from the PD. If you got anything that reminds people of the PD. So I don't, a day or two, a picture showed up of the great PD River, a painting, an oil painting, as well as General Francis Marion uh, donned the walls of our, of nice. our um, office. But yeah, I couldn't, much less a mountain. I couldn't move an anthill <laughs> if I wanted to. The, the governor couldn't move a mountain, but he probably couldn't move, or she could. When I was there, she couldn't move an anthill. I couldn't move um, either or. If I wanted anything done, you know where I went? I went to the speaker or the chair of the finance or the chair of the ways and means and said, hey, can you help us with this? If the governor needed anything, they went to the speaker or, or the, um, maybe even the president pro tem of the Senate. I mean, the governor could be um, the fifth most powerful person uh, politically in South Carolina, and some like it that way. I mean, some say I would rather this deliberate body you know the the uh the, all of these opinions would probably lead to a better outcome than one person's um single opinion and i get that uh, to some degree hey the most interesting thing i read over the weekend um so there that's what we need to do about judges we need to allow the governor to appoint a candidate for judge that potential judge or eventual judge go to a screening committee they deem that person qualified and competent and capable that person goes before the full body. The full body gives a thumbs up or a thumbs down. If they give a thumbs up, that person is on the bench for 10 years. Now, obviously, there are certain things they can't do. I mean, moral turpitude. and I mean, there are a lot of things they can't do. But if that person remains in good standing, they're able to run once more for another 10-year term, and then they're done. They get out of here. So the longest judge on the bench in South Carolina would have been there 20 years. And we kind of get new blood and fresh energy and um, not, not you know, career. I mean, I know 20 years is a career, but it's half of what 40 years is or 45 years or 50 years. And I, I just think we need to do a better job of that. Hey, um, the one thing I read over the weekend that I had a lot of interest in, Peggy Noonan. Um, we know who Peggy Noonan is. She is a, a conservative opinion writer for the Wall Street Journal. She is very celebrated in conservative circles. Historically, her opinions have mattered um, when, when the conservative reader um, sees Peggy Noonan is rent something by the Wall Street Journal. They care about what she says. So Friday, Mrs. Noonan had an article or an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal, and the name of it is Nixon's Example of Sanity in Washington. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the details and specifics, but she basically said that Nixon was the grown-up. When, when, when Republican operatives and activists encourage Richard Nixon to challenge the outcome of the election because we know LBJ cheated in Texas and we know the Kennedys cheated in, um, in Chicago, um, he said, yeah, you're probably right. The evidence does look that way. But 
um, for the sanity of America and to do the right thing, to be, a, you know, the rise above the fray, I'm going to, um, you know, not challenge the outcome. In other words, I'll concede the election and, and I'll get out of the way. Now, now, she says that that example of sanity is why Nixon, um, you know, the celebration of that example of sanity and decency and, and morals and ethics was the reason that Nixon got elected. Um, now, well, we know what the media did to Nixon once he did get elected. They made his life unbelievably complicated, and he left a lot of blood in the water with some of his paranoia and weirdness. I mean, one of the brightest presidents we've probably had in modern time, but probably the most paranoid and maybe one of the most um, unusual, very unusual, very academically gifted, intellectually gifted, was Richard Nixon. But Noonan's um, comments were 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 basically um i mean when she writes this I, I read what noonan has to say but then i go to the comment trib because this is not red state this is not breitbart this is not uh, the american conservative this is not the national review um you, you've got you kind of got a sliding scale of conservative opinions you've got on one end you've got um the daily caller and breitbart and the american conservative um, they're just steadfast. I mean, they don't want any, they're not going to take any gruff off anybody. Um, if the liberals want to fight, then you know where to come, you know where to find us. Um, we're right here and we're, we're, we're loaded. I mean, we're ready to roll. And then you've got the national review that is basically a step away from those, what I'd call hardcore conservative media outlets. And the national review says we're conservative, but let's be a little bit diplomatic here. I mean, let's talk about this for a bit. Let's be respectful of one another. Um, let's talk over this. Uh, let's talk this over at a dinner party or a, or a supper club, or one of these cocktail parties, and then a step away from Peggy Noonan, excuse me, from the National Review, you've got Peggy Noonan. N- Noonan is a, um, a classical conservative um, in the George Will, William Buckley mold. Um, now, just, she's one who believes that the spoken and written word or an accomplishment, and she's been paid um, handsomely, to write these things, but but she Noonan, wrote speeches for Reagan, right? Well, I mean, she did, and and, and she's a very con- um, she is highly regarded in the ranks of conservatism as we have historically and traditionally identified conservatism. She's not very popular with this new uh, breed, this new strain of conservative, and she doesn't care much for them. They don't care much for us. Let me say this again: she doesn't care much for us. We don't care much for her. But she's still an opinion that I pay attention to because I think she represents uh, the, the Washington establishment's identity of conservatism. She still believes um, that her opinion has a relevant role in political discourse in helping uh, cobble together what, where the Republican Party is and where it needs to be. Um, I think she's accepted that her opinions aren't as relevant as they formerly were. I mean, I think she's agreed to that. Uh, I think she knows there's a a rambunctiousness out here somewhere that she doesn't like, can't identify with, wish it would go away. But I read Noonan's um, article, and she's basically saying, yeah, they cheated Nixon, but he did the adult thing. He just let him cheat him. <laughs> you know, he expressed, he displayed sanity in this insane Washington nail. And she's talking about the big steal and Trump was robbed and, you know, some of the um, some of the conspiracy theorists that she says, and I think her words are, I don't have the article in front of me, I probably should, but I think her words are, we live in a Republican Party today where every hill is the grassy knoll. Uh, everybody's looking for a conspiracy and everybody believes the game is rigged at every turn under all circumstances and nothing but that can be the truth. 
Well, I, I went down and looked at some of the um, some of the comments. I'll tell you the most interesting part of this is not where Peggy Noonan is and what she believes. What do the subscribers of the Wall Street Journal believe? Not the subscribers of Breitbart. We know what they believe. Not the subscribers. Not the um the person buying the the uh, the plus edition of the Daily Caller. I mean, they've expressed. We know kind of what they are. I mean, we we know exactly what they believe. I mean, they, they they're all in. I mean, they're all in on, on Nixon should have sued the government and Nixon should have done kind of what Trump has done. But but Noonan still believes that there's a that there there's that there's a place in the room for an adult. And if the adult will kind of um, stand its ground and, and say, look, Nixon was a sane man and Nixon did the, the, the same thing by accepting the outcome of the election. Um, and that's the example we need to set. That's how we need to, to move forward. And there were about 18 or 1900 comments. Now, obviously, I didn't read 18 or 1900 comments, but I perused um, and scrolled probably a couple of hundred. 90-10 against Noonan. Peggy, shut up. Peggy, your time has come and gone. Peggy, we don't care much about what you have to say any longer. Nixon needed to do what Trump is doing. We need to be more confrontational. We need to be more argumentative. Guys, these are the subscribers of the Wall Street Journal. But these are not, once again, these are not the daily callers. And I'm not begrudging, nor demeaning, nor disparaging the daily caller. I mean, I'm probably more in line with the daily caller than I am the subscriber of the National, excuse me, the, uh, the Wall Street Journal. The point I'm trying to make is the universe who want to do things the way Peggy Noonan wishes things were done are getting smaller and smaller and smaller within the Republican Party. The Republican Party is, is beginning to really understand the only way to win this battle is to be confrontational, to be argumentative, to not back down from a fight no matter how uh, many odds are stacked against you in this fight. Take MSNBC on. Take NBC on. Take the New York Times on. Take the, the Washington Post. Whatever. Whatever comes your way, don't try to appear to be sane and respectful and, and, and not be argumentative. Let, let's be adults. Let's be adults. Well, when you're adults, they, they steal elections. When you're adults, they impeach presidents. When, when you're an adult, you're going to get exactly what you deserve. And it's just so interesting to me. And I'm not talking about 50-50. I mean, it was like, it, Peggy, thank you for speaking up. It's time an adult Republican began kind of hoarding these cats and getting everybody back in line or hurting these cats, getting everybody back in line. There is very little of that. Mm. Very few comments. And I probably read 100 comments. And it's, Is it encouraging to you? It's very encouraging. I mean, I think people still respect Peggy Noonan, but people are tired of her stylistically telling them, hey, sit down with the Democrat. See if you can reason and rationale with the Democrat. Um, no, no. I think DeSantis is creating the playbook of how to move forward. And what somebody asked me uh, Thursday of last week, I think it was Thursday of last week, what's the biggest difference in DeSantis and Trump? And I don't know anybody's heart and soul. I don't have any idea what makes someone function, but it appears to me that DeSantis is less about himself. I mean, the, the, the style is about the same. The, 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 um, the ability to be confrontational and aggressive and not back down is about the same, but it appears to me DeSantis can convince us that this is not all about me. The cause is bigger than I am. With Trump, we know, we, we have no idea what the second most important thing is. We know what the first most important thing is, and that's Donald Trump. I mean, he's, he, there's no question about that. Even the biggest Trump um, cheerleader, the biggest Trump supporter, will admit that is his blind spot. 
I mean, that is his fatal flaw. That is his enormous weakness. He's not able to put himself in a secondary position. DeSantis appears to be able to advance arguments and, and, and chaos and disruption and in-your-face politics without it being about him. And I think as he takes on Disney, I mean, it would be Trump and Disney. I think now it's doing right versus doing wrong. I think DeSantis is able to kind of um, relegate himself to a not, not not a secondary role, but he can't be secondary in this. But I think he's going to be the most um, effective fighter as we confront in argumentative fashion. And and I just wonder if Noonan reads. I mean, I got to believe she reads some of the uh, some of the comments when she posts a, an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal. But when she reads it, I think she's going to realize a year ago it was um, you know sixty forty. Today it's ninety ten. And, and I think Peggy Noonan at some point in time will just understand that train has left the station and, and the way I wish things were going to be conducted and the way I wish things could be done are just not going to come to fruition. We live in a very different political era, and these people, I'm talking about the subscribers for the Wall Street Journal, I mean, these people are normally um, not chaotic. They're, they're not bombastic. They would rather sort these things out in a more dignified fashion they just don't believe they can. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a second. I guess the point that Miss Noonan is trying to make is when the establishment steals an election and lies of the public, we should just take it <laughs> because they're credible. They're the establishment. This is a bunch of ragtags or, or rambunctious rednecks. Yeah, she, she's or looking back seeds. on Richard Nixon fondly because he just took it. Yeah, but he took it because, you know, that was the establishment thing to do. And, and I guess in her in her writings, she's trying to encourage people to be more established, to be more orderly, to be more respectful, no matter what the outcomes are. And I just, I'm proud to say that the American public have had enough of that. I mean, there are a lot of things we've disagreed about and we've argued over. I mean, a lot of our callers and I over the years have had disagreements about what to do here and what to do there. And man, I wish we'd done this a little bit differently or that. And that's fine. But I think it's productive. I think we are all better when we bounce those sorts of disagreements off of one another. But I don't bump into many people who refer to themselves as America Firsters, who believe we need to be more civil and respectful to the establishment and those who are in charge. And Chris Christie a little bit yesterday, I don't know if you saw this or not, but Christie, mm-hmm. I watched two hours of Sunday morning talk shows because I do that in preparation for this job. And and Christie was the only quasi-conservative voice that I heard um, on those two hours. And I watched Stephanopoulos, and I watched Meet the Press. I watched Fox. They probably had a little bit fair treatment. But it's obvious Meet the Press and This Week with George Stephanopoulos, formerly This Week with David Brinkley, I mean, they've morphed into a just an absolute propaganda arm of the, of the leftist and liberal agenda. Um, Ruth Marcus and some other person in the New York Times are there. And Christie said, look, we can argue about the semantics and we can argue about, you know, he said, she said. At the end of the day on Hunter Biden, the New York Post is the only media that got it right. And social media, talking about Twitter and Facebook, chose to censor. But I guess Noonan says, yeah, but they're the establishment. And the establishment has these sets of rules. And when the establishment says certain things, we should just take it. You know why Noonan says that? Because historically we have. And we've kind of gotten in line. I'm encouraging all of us. Keep that argumentative side and nature about you. It's going to require that. Let's go to the phone. Here's Charles in Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. Y'all have solved all the problems in the world. You know, if you want to make that uh, 
this week with George Stephanopoulos interesting, get a new host, and have this week with Beth Dutton. I believe you'll have a whole lot more interesting <laughs> program. Yeah, and somebody may get you killed. Know, uh, years ago, I knew a franchise car dealer down in Orangeburg who was from Hampton, and I said, your name's spelled M-U-R-D-A-U-G-H. How do you pronounce it? He said, it's Murdoch. And uh, he was from Hampton, and I heard you talking about the Murdochs earlier. Alec Murdoch pronounces his name Illick, like I-L-I-K, Murdoch with a K at the end. Now, whether that's right or wrong, that's how he pronounces it. I hope that answers one of your unsolved mysteries this morning. Thank you, Charles. You've added to the list. We're solving <laughs> mysteries galore here. This morning, we fixed the USC Board of Trustees. Mm-hmm. Not only we fixed the athletic program, but we fixed the USC Board of Trustees. If they'll only listen, we fixed um, the way we select judges in South Carolina. And now we've got in the first person someone who knows that they refer to themselves as Murdoch, Murdoch. not Murdahl. And I'll say this. What is the famous scene in um, Coming to America when he says, his mama named him Clay? I'm going to call him Clay. If they call themselves Murdoch then no matter how it's spelled, we'll refer to them <laughs> as... Go to the um, source. Yeah. So, so Elick Murdoch from Hampton County is a lot of splaining to do, as we like to say, in the country. And that's no laughing matter. I mean, we know that is, wow, what a web we weave. Um, somebody will get wealthy writing a book, making a movie, and I don't think we've begun to get to the bottom of this. I mean, I, I, I got to believe there are drug cartels and, and Chinese business people. I'm serious. I mean, I think it goes to that. I mean, I think it turns into the Ozark just, miniseries just when you think you've heard on it Netflix. All. Yeah, I mean, I think we end up with Ozark. I really and truly do. Wow. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, the Gamecock women's basketball program is kind of like the real good-looking girl when you're younger that drinks too much. <laughs> you know what I mean? She's really good-looking, but she drinks too much. The Gamecock women's basketball program is really good, but they won't stand for the damn national anthem, and they are, they're they are politically activist and uh, talking about oppression and all these other sorts of things. It's kind of a uh, cut-both-ways sort of scenario right. or dynamic. I just concluded this, um, and, I, and I'll stop. I just concluded, if there's a Carolina written across your shirt and it's garnet and black, I'm pulling for you. I mean, I wish they would behave differently. I wish that I could... Um, uh, better address some of the oppressed um, issues or some of the oppression that we talk about or they're concerned about. I just wonder if anybody's asked Coach Staley, give me a specific example of what oppression is. I mean, where have you been oppressed? And maybe as a university, we could address it, make it, you know, uh, a public debate or have some sort of public debate. Um, but anyway, dr- draws a lot of attention. She's a good coach. They're a good team. Uh, I've been I a game cock to, all my life. I was a little upset when I, I read the story. I was tremendously bothered by the from, story from of them Friday. not. Yeah. And, and, that, and national media ran with that. It was maybe well, USA Today, I mm-hmm. think, uh, did the story mm-hmm. about them uh, in the locker room for the national anthem when the other team was on the court, right? Mm-hmm. And they had a picture well, of Well, somebody said the there was a scheduling conflict. Something didn't go down right before the game, but apparently Stanford just coordinated um, with the scheduling conflict as well, or whomever. Who and, and I, I did Was it Stanford they were playing? I think so. I yeah. think it was Stanford. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't see last night's game, but what I read, or I didn't see the beginning of the game. What I read was both teams were on the court yeah. for the national anthem, and and so I tuned in uh, sometime during the first quarter. And by the end of the game, I was pulling for him, and I was, I mean, I was right there with him. Yeah, uh, it still bothers me that um. The flagship university allows a coach to dictate the terms and conditions of how 
you know, I, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, this is not a sports talk show, but we'll, we'll kind of leave that for another day and another, and another But they show. are the national champions. They are so. the national champions. And she'll probably win a couple more in a sport that nobody cares about. She'll probably win a couple more um, national championships. I said it and I'll say it again. Clemson, I mean, we can't do this, but I would. I mean, just so you know, and I think Clemson fans like to hear me say this, I would swap both baseballs and both women's basketball championships for the two footballs you've got. I mean, I'll be the Gamecock that admits that. I've heard some say, well, I mean, you know, they won a couple of soccer championships, which is football. Maybe not football, but football. Um, I don't care about that. I care about soccer about as much as I do uh, women's basketball. The college baseball is a little bit different. I grew up playing baseball, so I, you know, am proud that they won a couple of back, you know, back-to-back national championships. And but it's football as far as I'm concerned. And I'd swap. I'd even throw in the bass fishing championship we won years and years ago. So there you go, Clemson fans. How about that? A couple of baseball championships, a couple of women's basketball championships, and a bass fishing fishing championship <laughs> to get my hands on those two on those two football championships that those guys have. Hey, eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is our number. We've toiled around for about ten years and we've tried our our damnedest to become the um the local political media outlet. I don't know if we've succeeded, but I think we've um, we've integrated ourselves into that world in a credible fashion. Now, obviously, this is an opinion show. It's not that there's not a lot of news. We have news blurbs every hour, and every now and then we'll get into a debate about something more newsy than other times. Um, the majority of this is a host giving his opinion and listeners reacting to his opinion with their opinions, however agreeable or, or disagreeable they may be. But the one thing we've done recently that I'm I'm proud of uh, over the last several years is become kind of the um, the grand central station or the epicenter of political debates. We've had some county council debates. We've had some mayoral debates. We've had some um, House of Representatives debates. We've had some pretty interesting, um, and I think that's community sure. service. I mean, I really believe that we're doing a service to the communities we serve when we have these folks. Um, over the public airwaves, discussing and expressing uh, their political opinions. However, once again, um, agreeable or disagreeable, they may be. But we've um, we've worked on this for a long time, and we've got it to a point where we're ready to make public. Now, once again, there's few specifics we got to work out. But um, Rev and our and our general manager Wayne Mulling and a couple of others here at Community Broadcasters have worked closely with Dr. Fred Carter and John Sweeney at Francis Marion University with some folks at WNBF. You can name the, the people I probably can't. But out of that came this um this joint venture. So Wake Up Carolina and WNBF Television and Francis Marion University have collaborated with the Florence County GOP. With the Florence County GOP. Let's give Mike Page his credit. I mean, he really worked hard in organizing and arranging and twisting arms and trying to get some other things um, done here. So the Florence GOP, the the television, our great television network, and um, and WMBF, Francis Marion University, and the Performing Arts Center, and, uh, and community broadcasters in Wake Up Carolina have um, have come up with a with a way to host a debate. Uh, the debate is going to be in May, if I'm not mistaken. We're scheduled for May 5th. May 5th at the Performing Arts Center in downtown Florence, South Carolina, which is a property of Francis Marion University. Uh, we originally planned for this debate to be at 6. We've moved it back until 7 because television wants to um, broadcast live. So from 7 until 9, 
Um, we'll be live and live in color at the Performing Arts Center. I don't have any idea how you get a ticket. I don't know if you need a ticket, um, but but it will be televised and broadcast over the airwaves. Um, I have been fortunate enough to be asked to moderate this debate. Um, I'm excited about that. I'm enthusiastic about being a part of this. Um, it, it's such a, um, I mean, it'll be one of the most important elections in America. I mean, when you look at Liz Cheney in Wyoming, I mean, that's obviously kind of the, um, and the reason it's so um, hotly contested in Wyoming is Liz Cheney doesn't like Trump, Trump doesn't like Liz Cheney. I don't think Tom Rice has animus toward Donald Trump. I don't think Trump has much animus towards uh, Tom Rice. I think Rice took a vote that um, that created this outcome or created this dynamic where we have a Trump-endorsed candidate, Russell Fry, an incumbent congressman who voted to impeach Donald Trump. We got a couple of other candidates that are fighting tooth and nail for the support of the uh, the voters, the Republican primary voters in District 7, and we'll give um, all of you an up-close and personal look at the the candidates who meet a certain threshold. There's a certain threshold. I won't bore you with the details, but it has to do with polling and fundraising. Um, in other words, we don't want 9 or 10 or 11 candidates up there. We want the 4 or 5 that have a legitimate chance to win this election, and we're applying certain standards about fundraising and polling that will um, – that will give you, the public, a chance to hear the four or five candidates who have a chance to be successful in this race. But uh, we're excited about that. I want to thank WMBF for working with us to broadcast uh, live on television. I want to thank Francis Marion University for offering up the Performing Arts Center and their support to this um, this political event. That that'll, I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, I'm, I'm telling mm-hmm. you guys, there, there will be a lot of attention uh, paid to uh, the 7th Congressional District of South Carolina's Republican primary because Trump is a central figure. Republican congressman who voted with nine other Republican congressmen and women to impeach Donald Trump, and now Trump has um, made a visit to Florence. He's endorsed a candidate, Russell Fry, has the endorsement of Donald Trump. you got Barbara Arthur and Dr. Garrett Barton and Ken Richardson and Mark McBride, and there are still a couple of others of which I don't know the names of, but the, all of these folks are vying for um, your vote, and we'll be um, we'll be covering it over the airwaves live on ninety five point three Thursday night, May the fifth, from seven until nine. Here's where I want to engage our listeners. I mean, I'm I'm moderating. I mean, we will provide the candidates with categories. There will be foreign policy questions. There will be domestic policy. There will be spending issues. I mean, I think it's fair to the candidates that they have some. Um, idea of what sort of categories we're going to cover. No different than presidential debates. I mean, the presidential debate will have a domestic, uh, you know, a domestic issue debate. Then they'll have a foreign policy debate. We're going to do something similar to that, but we'll kind of intertwine foreign policy with domestic policy and spending. But but if if you had the moderator's ear, and you do, what sorts of questions or what specific question for that matter would you like to hear these candidates answer? I mean, I think that's an interesting exercise that we can have one with another over the next month that we'll kind of um, record some of these questions. And um, I mean, you got to be fair minded. These aren't gotcha questions, but they are intended to be very to elicit a response that that is something other than a soundbite. I mean, that, that's going to be my intent as a moderator. I'm going to make these candidates answer questions that they hardly ever have to answer, but should. I mean, if you are a member of Congress or want to be a member of Congress, you should have to answer, what are we going to do about Social Security and Medicare? But they never have to. So I can assure you with this, it's going to be fair, it's going to be impartial, 
but it's going to be provocative. We're going to make these candidates get a little uncomfortable in answering questions they hardly ever get asked. But I'm soliciting from our listeners, from our audience, what sorts of questions would you like to hear? Some of these um, politicians and aspiring politicians have to answer. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Oh, uh, uh, good morning. Congratulations, Ken. And I don't think they could have, uh, well, I'm, I'm kind of aghast that they, they picked you but in some ways, but I don't think they could have picked a better, more practical moderator. And I hope you hold their feet to the fire on these things because uh, uh, the main problem I have with Bryce is it's just obvious to me he got rattled when all that stuff was happening up there at the Capitol. And I I don't uh, really think that makes for a good representation, somebody that uh, gets rattled, especially from South Carolina. But uh, that's 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 just me. But congratulations, and I don't think I know they couldn't have gotten a better moderator. And uh, but uh, what amazes me is you went through and you so- solved all these uh, problems with rivalry between Clemson and uh, Carolina. You saw that uh, this morning, the first hour, and uh, and I think that's admirable. But I don't think it's going to make any difference if the if uh, these uh, people that are leading us right now are allowed to fly the economy into the ground at top speed, like that plane in China going straight down into the ground. How do you hold it straight down? I mean, every plane I've ever been in, if you you point it straight down, it wants to pull up on its own. But uh, uh, you can probably comment on that more than I can. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. I mean, the majority of, I mean, I'm not a, a, I didn't build planes, never flown a plane. I've flown in planes in my life. Uh, My dad was a pilot. My brother's a pilot. I come from a a family of pilots. My mom made me promise. Rev, last time I tell this story, my mom (laughs) said, promise me you won't get your pilot license. I said, why? She said, because you'll take too many chances. And when mama says, don't do something, I normally, eh, sometimes I didn't do it. As I got older, uh, I heeded her advice more than when I was younger. Mike's talking about holding feet to the fire. Mike Pace just texted me a second ago. Ticket info is coming. I mean, we'll have ticket information as it becomes available. We're still working out some of the um, some of the details yeah. and specifics. But, but, but we are inviting an audience. No question sure. about it. And I would imagine um, you need to have a ticket to come and attend. Uh, we want a big crowd there. You're probably most interested in um, that race so um yeah about a month from now on a thursday night at the performing arts center campus france well it's actually not on the campus it's in downtown florence it is kind of a campus i mean francis marion university has made such an investment in downtown florence it is almost like a a campus a within a beautiful facility it, it is without question and the acoustics i'm told are amazing Ooh. uh yeah i went to see uh i think the concert i went to was the guy that didn't see any of his hits he's only got two or three hits oh. mandolin rain yeah bruce horns yeah he didn't see anything we knew and i think he did it on purpose <laughs> thinking we were hayseeds and teach us a lesson for being red state but, but the, were the acoustics okay they were great phenomenal no question about it so, so, you, so your voice ought to sound great uh, in such an acoustic yeah okay <laughs> with the level of sarcasm you say that <laughs> hey mike was talking about you know holding people accountable this is an interesting story i read uh one day last week and i held on to it knowing at some point in time we would go there yale medical school I mean, you got to believe uh, if you're going to Yale, that's prestigious in its own right. If you're going to Yale Medical School, 
right? I mean, that would even, I mean, there's more prestige associated with going to Yale Medical School even than simply going to Yale. Um, But a former Yale University employee admitted to um, stealing more than $40 million worth of electronics from the Ivy League school. Um, Jamie Petroni um, didn't hold a particular high position. I mean, when you think about it, she was the director of finance and administration at Yale Medical School's Department of Emergency Medicine. So it's not like she's the chancellor or the, you know, the, 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 the provost. I mean, she is the, she is the chief, excuse me, the director of finance and administration at the school's Department of Emergency Medicine. Now, now she was authorized to buy electronic equipment for her department as long as the total value was below $10,000. It turned out that about 90% of the purchases she made on behalf of Yale Medical School were fraudulent. The goods were shipped to an unnamed out-of-state business which sold the equipment for cash and wired the proceeds to an account controlled by a, a company called Maziv Entertainment, which Patron was listed as a principal. Stick with me for a second. So an employee at Yale, a director of finance in the emergency medicine department, laundered about $40 million from the Ivy League school via um, purchasing equipment of a value less than $10,000, of which she was authorized to do, um, shipping those to an unnamed um, out-of-state business, selling those for whatever, I don't know, 90 cent on the dollar, 80 cent on the dollar, um, now, 90% of the equipment that Yale's emergency department paid for, which ended up by about $41 million, never showed up, never made its way to the campus, didn't exist. That, that doesn't bother me as much as something else. So you've got a lady who's laundering money, embezzling money, stealing, uh, pilfering the, the Yale emergency um, medicine department of its funds to the tune of $40 million, and nobody missed it. Nobody missed $40 million. There's another example. Um, how does a, well, let me stay here for, how does a school continue to exist and operate with $40 million gone? I mean, you know there's too much damn money sloshing around in the coffers of Yale when somebody steals $40 million and nobody knows it. I mean, if you run a business, and $40 million's missing, you're out of business. I mean, unless you're Apple or Intel or Microsoft or one of these huge international conglomerates. But, but Yale is so flush that someone steals $40 million and they just keep on keeping on. Let's go to Minnesota. You ready? Feeding our future in Minnesota is a federal free food program. They've got this um, child and adult care food program, a summer food service program. Um, they're missing about $25 million. They found out that um, in the Minnesota Somali, Somali community, they have a big Somali community in Minnesota, um, there were thousands of names and addressed to Somali immigrants who were phantom beneficiaries of these government programs, um, federal taxpayer money was administered by the state of Minnesota. Um, luxury cars, there were three Ferraris confiscated. <laughs> there was a Bugatti. 
that was confiscated. Um, Reb, th- there were homes in. Hold on, let me let me get this straight. There were homes in um, three properties in Connecticut, uh, a property in Georgia. All of these properties were seized. Um, Sixty thousand dollars. Excuse me, five hundred and sixty thousand dollars of high-end cars, including two Mercedes-Benz, two Cadillac Escalades, a Range Rover, and a Dodge Charger. Um, another Somali had two Ferraris. One person had a Bugatti. Um, someone got a tray of gold worth $100,000 as a wedding gift. Used the money raised by... So um, so how can some of these, um, let us say, fly-by-night fraudsters, how can these people loot Yale out of 40 million and um and they still don't know what the total is in the state of minnesota i mean they don't know how much it is they're somewhere about 25 million but they're not sure they're even close to how much money um how can these programs still exist i can tell you because they got too much money yale has too much money however they're getting it's a private university but still that there's some public dollars i mean that they got a lot of ppp money and they got a lot of um you know some of the uh, covid relief money we'll get to covid relief money in a second here but i mean when you think about that these two financial scandals and you got to believe there are a great many more that we don't know about and will never be uncovered but but i mean some of these Massive government programs, some of these um, nonprofit institutions, uh, in this case, the state of Minnesota and Yale University, have so much money that no one misses when millions and millions and millions go up in smoke or go missing. I mean, it's bizarre to me. How many of you run a business? Let's say you run a business and how many of you could operate if 40 million were stolen nobody i mean i don't know of anybody that could do that but but and once again th- there's always been scams there, there's always been fraud perpetrated against whomever the government business private sector whatever um but you've got to be in a pretty good um cash position as a government agency if 40 million go missing and somewhere in excess of 25 million go missing and the programs are still i mean they're still rolling i mean imagine how much surplus you have to have Imagine how much, if you can run the program for $25 million less, we're overfunding that program. If you can run an emergency director, excuse me, an emergency um, medicine department within the institution of Yale Med, we know we're spending too much money. It's bizarre to me. I mean, it's absurd to me, these two programs. And it's not that someone got caught stealing. It's the fact that somebody was able to steal $40 million and $25 million, and the two government programs just keep on keeping on. It's surreal to me that that is indeed the world of which we live. We'll take a break. I know I got a call. I'm going to get too long-winded here. Back in just a couple of minutes, and we'll take that call as soon as we get back. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Rujan in the PD. Good morning, Rujan. Hey, guys. I, I called in in the last hour. I was trying to get in, but, but I had a call from Big Mama, so I had to hang up. But listen, Ken, in today's society, which is zero tolerance, you know, you've got a bunch of bullies out there and you got the bullies in the Democrat Party. And what happens in school when you learn that, you know, uh, the teacher might tell you one thing, but uh, mom and daddy might tell you something different. Uh, you just need to smack that bully, punch him in the nose, give him a good, you know, beating to a fair well, go on about your business. And the next time that bully will know, quit messing with us. And that's what's going to have to happen with the Democrat Party. The heck with being the gentleman. The heck with being Mr. Nice Guy. 
you got to improvise, adapt, and overcome. And the only way to do that in this case is to kick their honey and send them home running to mama. That's it. That's all. Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate that. And I do believe that there's this stylistic change we're having to make as Republicans. I mean, you know, I, I watch a lot of these old videos of um. I watched something about Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett ran Solomon Brothers before he founded Berkshire Hathaway, or he may have founded Berkshire Hathaway um, while he was chairman of the Solomon Brothers. But there was a lot of um, improprieties within. He apologized. He appeared before the Senate, and it was very dignified. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. I went back and watched about an hour of it. I mean, because he's the richest. You know, he went on to be the wealthiest man in the world at one point in time. Uh, I think he's been um, supplanted by Musk and Bezos and some of these other guys. But at one point in time, I mean, if any point in your life you're the richest man on the planet, you're still wealthy. I mean, you're still wealthy beyond anybody's wildest imagination. But Buffett sat there and, and, and addressed Republicans and Democrats in a banking or finance committee, and it was extremely cordial. I mean, it was very respectful. It was not trying to score political points 101. I mean, it was trying to get to the bottom of what Solomon Brothers had done, uh, did Buffett have anything to do with it? I mean, he was there apologizing, very apologetic and expressing his concern about, you know, we did these things wrong and we're going to do better. We don't have a problem with government oversight. But it was not a he got you, she got you, they got everybody sort of affair. But it's morphed into something different than that, Rev. And I think the only thing the right can take, uh, the, the left plays for keeps. And I think the right must play for keeps. What did Harry Reid famously say about Mitt Romney? I mean, he admitted they lied about his taxes, but he said he didn't win, did he? I mean, we, you know, that's kind of the, that's the way the Democrats roll today. Now, I'm not saying it's the way they've always rolled, because once again, I think if you go back and listen to Buffett appear before a joint subcommittee, there is, um, there are very serious questions by Republicans. There are very serious questions by Democrats. Um, that's the old way of which we conducted politics in America. And maybe that's what um, uh, Peggy Noonan's writing about when she romances about the um, the era of sanity and when a, when Nixon got, you know, jobbed. I mean, she's basically saying, yeah, Nixon probably got jobbed, but, but he did the right thing. I mean, he took it on the chin and he kind of moved on and went past that. Well, I mean, what is the, um, what is the moral hazard for cheating? I mean, if you're LBJ, and you cheat in Texas to beat Richard Nixon, or you kind of um, rig the, the vote in, in, in Texas. And we believe, or many historians believe, not me as a radio show host, there are many historians that believe Joe Kennedy had a lot to do with what happened in Illinois, the city of Chicago in particular. But Noonan is saying, well, you can't really prove it, so just accept it and move on. And I think the political-minded um, conservative today says, no, I'm not taking it at all. I mean, if I think something happened, I'm going to say it over and over and over again. And um, and I'll just, as I said, I watched some of the Sunday morning shows yesterday. They spent more time, or at least equal time, which wasn't a lot on either, but they spent at least as much time on the the text of the wife, Jenny Thomas, the um, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and whether she should be subpoenaed, whether he should recuse himself, from any votes about January 6th, the, the absurdity of that. And then you try to compare and contrast that with the way Hunter Biden and the Biden family business has been um, been dealt with by the media and by some of the establishment authorities or, or the establishment traditions in Washington. Um, no, I mean, the American public, I think, are tired 
of the double standard. They're tired of two sets of rules, one uh, for, you know, people who don't have political influence and another for those who do. And Peggy Noonan, I would imagine, um, has more endeared herself to those with political influence than she has with those who don't have very much political influence. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jim in Florence. Morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So uh, with Peggy Noonan, you know, when a dad could work uh, the line at Esob or DuPont and the mom could part-time substitute at the local school, and with that money they could have a timeshare at the beach, um, and uh, the kids had shoes when they needed them, and, they, you know, there was you, you didn't have to pick a meatless day during the week to afford your groceries. Um, you know, it was okay to take it on the chin back then. Um, but, you know, Ken, uh, we, we used to tar and feather these, these, uh, these politicians. So I, I think being bombastic like Trump uh, is being actually kind of nice. So, um, you know, but uh, I want to go back to your judge uh, thing real quick, too. Um, when it, I think we ought to be more like Florida. Obviously, Florida's got things figured out, um, and we should take pages out of their book. One of the things that they do, Ken, and I don't know if it goes all the way to their Supreme Court, but I know their appellate court, um, after so many years um, of a judge being – a judge gets appointed to the appellate court, and after so many years, the public has the right to vote on whether he gets to keep his judgeship or not. Uh, maybe, that's, maybe that's a happy medium from you know, my stance where we should elect everybody to uh, somebody like you. Um, where we can meet in the middle and say, hey, okay, they, they can get on the bench, but after four, five years, the public gets to give them a yes or no vote about whether they get to stay or not. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Well, I mean, I threw that out there as kind of a, um, yeah, it's a hybrid. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's some degree of compromise, but um, Jim's always expressed, and many others have, have expressed, and, and I can remember presiding over some of those joint sessions going, wow. I mean, I don't know if this is the best way to put people on on the bench. You know, they've gained favor with members of the General Assembly, and, um, you know, out of that comes a, you know, a term as a judge. I'm not saying that, that it's all, you know, political and corrupt and all these other. Well, it's all political. There's no doubt about it. Um, so you got that extreme, and I do think that's an extreme measure. I mean, I think, you know, a, a, someone to say to someone else, I want to be a judge, and that person says, okay, here's what you have to do. And out of that comes a vote on the floor of a joint session of the General Assembly. To me, that's too political. Now, now I'm like Representative Lowe. I don't want a billboard with with someone saying, hey, text 1-800-such-and-such and and make a contribution to my campaign. If you elect me judge, you know, I'll make sure that nobody ever goes to jail or everybody goes to jail or whatever sort of um, campaign you're running and, I don't know, um, uh, the voting constituency you're fi- trying to relate to. I just argue that, you know, that there might be a reasonable compromise here. And I've always felt that the governor of South Carolina needed more political influence. So the way to give the governor more political influence is to allow a sitting governor, when, when a judgeship comes open, somebody retires or something happens, um, that judgeship comes open, whomever the governor is that day nominates somebody to take his place. That somebody goes to a screening committee or a vetting committee. Um, They determine whether he's capable, competent, morally, ethically sound. Uh, And then he goes before the full body. And the full body gives the governor's um, nominee nominee, uh, an up or down vote. 
and that person is on the bench for, well, let's say 10 years. It could be eight years. I mean, I, I, can, I can listen to a lot of other arguments there. Let's say it's a 10-year term, and at the end of that 10-year term, uh, if that judge has not done something to warrant them being removed from the bench, they go back to the General Assembly for an up or down vote. Jim's arguing for a little more public involvement. I get that. And Florida does some of these pretty creative things in allowing judges to be held accountable, not by just the General Assembly, but the voting uh, public as well. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a, I think there's an interesting hybrid there that we could come up with. I guess the argument is, um, and I think most people would agree to this, it doesn't need to just be about the General Assembly, nor does it to be just about the public, because once again, I don't want a billboard or radio advertising saying, hey, you know, vote me as judge. Well, I mean, you got to go through your donor list and who gave you money and what's the likelihood that a family member or a friend or some associate gets in trouble to hot water and they try to get him before that judge. And I mean, that, that gets political. You're not going to take the politics out of it. I mean, that's that's essentially impossible to make it unpolitical or apolitical. That's not going to happen. I just think a, a governor making that nomination and that nominee being vetted and then voted up or down with a with a, a, a you know a term limit in place of somewhere between 16 and 20 years, it, I mean, that, that would lead to better judiciary as far as I'm concerned. Let's go to the phone, and then we'll take a break. David in Florence is next. Hi, David. Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken, I just saw Good Morning America. Uh, they had the ladies' basketball team on, and I, I give them credit. They had the good old black and garnet uh, block C Gamecock uh on their on their uh outfit so i give them credit on that coach k uh coach k started back when we were in high school ken at duke back in 1980 wow i mean he should have been a politician seems like most of these politicians last that long 42 years at one job uh so i'll give him credit at least he had to produce uh now his first three years he got in a little bit of trouble uh, because he didn't do so well, but after that, uh, he did well. Uh, and to get back to, you were talking about um, Buster Murdoch is what my dad used to call this, because I grew up three miles away from Hampton County, and that was the solicitor down there today. But again, my father, he used to call, uh, he used to say Strong, Thurman, and Ernest Hollings. But maybe you just need to ask Harputlian, uh, about how you pronounce the man's name, especially when he has billboards uh, about renting boats. But anyway, um, you said you watched Stephanopoulos yesterday? I did. I watched the majority of it. Maybe yeah. not all of it, but the, the majority. You know what's sad about that? That was Stephanopoulos interviewing Ron Klein. That is Frick interviewing Frack. That's Hack interviewing Hack. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, I mean, Ron Klein's talking about how we've got deficit reduction. Oh, my gosh. I mean, and everything is blame Putin. And I heard something about this, talking about Putin is self-isolation. Guess what? Biden is in group isolation. And I'll leave you this. When I think about Ron Klein, imagine Gamecocks win three games in a football season, and then the next year they win six games. 100% increase in wins. Clemson wins 14 games and then loses. I mean, I'm sorry, wins 12 games. They, they they talk about a decrease in wins. And it's sad to see all these spinsters are in control of the media. 
I'll leave you at that. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Well, the 25th of March, Elon Musk tweeted, free speech is essential to a functioning democracy. Do you believe Twitter rigorously, rigorously, rigorously adheres to the principle um, 70% say no, 29% say say yes. The consequences of this poll will be important. Please vote carefully. The 26th must tweets. Given that Twitter serves as a de facto public town square, failing to adhere to free speech principles fundamentally undermines democracy. What should be done? Is a new platform needed? A lot of people got amped up about that. I mean, Elon's going to start his own you know, um, social media site, and he's got all this money, and he's a smart guy, and he's a big believer in the First Amendment, the freedom uh, to speak your mind as you see fit. Um, That's not what he did. Uh, The Security Exchange Commission this morning released a filing that Elon Musk now owns 9.2% of Twitter. Ooh. That's twice as much stock as Jack Dorsey owns. Well. Um, 73.5 million shares, $2.89 billion worth. That's according to the market close price on Friday. Now, this was revealed this morning. The purchase makes Musk the largest stakeholder in Twitter with over four times the share of former Twitter CEO and co-founder um, Jack Dorsey. Now, Twitter stock's up 26% as a result of this. When you got $273 billion, or that's your net worth, what's $2.89 billion? Um, well, I wonder how much stock he has to own in order to get a seat on the board. Uh, I would imagine he has a seat on the board. Only 9% of the company would probably get you, might get you a couple of seats on the board. I'm I'm for, let, let's start a movement here. You ready? Elon Musk and Carl Icahn for um, board members at Tesla, excuse me, at um. At uh, Twitter, at Twitter, Tesla. That's his other. <laughs> that's his ultra other million. He, he's on the board. Yeah, I mean, he's he is the board. <laughs> he is there. the board. Yeah. Um, Twitter began not letting, and this is where this is where Musk fell out with Twitter. Listen to me, fell out with Twitter. This is when Musk really got aggravated and, and upset with Twitter when he said that he was. He tweeted one day he was thinking about taking Tesla uh, public. Excuse me, private. And at four hundred twenty dollars and all this kind of stuff, and and Twitter basically censored because the market price of Tesla. Wall Street yelled and screamed that he was too much of a renegade and a rebel, and he was manipulating and distorting the price of Tesla stock. So Wall Street screamed and yelled, and Wall Street normally gets its way when it screams and yells. I love Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I really, I think he is. I like where this is. He going. is one of our next great hope if we are to change the political orbit. Back in a minute. You know, for the first three hours, we've not even discussed. I want to go back real quick, and then we'll go to this, this next subject I want to talk about for an hour. Um, what does it mean that Elon Musk owns, you know, nearly 10% of Twitter? I don't have any idea. I mean, I have no idea the construct of their board, who the other board members are. What We know that Elon Musk has always been, you know, it's interesting because someone asked me uh, not long ago, is Musk a Republican? I said, well, I don't know. Re- Republicanism in my lifetime has consisted of the, the, this religious fundamentalism. Um, it seems to me that Musk is more interested in um, intelligent realism. I mean, he's never offered much opinion about God or, or faith or, you know, spirituality. I mean, I don't, I don't know where he lands. I don't have any idea what his beliefs are as a regard, in regards to that. Um, 
but but it does seem to me that he's a very this sounds weird with a guy with an iq probably off the charts and and you know builds spaceships and electric cars for a living and i mean literally i mean he works on the line he had one of these think tank guys who says hey i'm an investor in tesla i'm an investor in spacex no when you hear him talk and i and i've, I've done this I mean, when you hear him talk about lithium batteries and ions and all these i mean he understands the science and engineering behind it when he starts talking about reverse reverse propulsion and all these i mean he understands the science he's such a i mean i think he's our generation's renaissance man or let me back up he is the you know the younger generation's renaissance man um in in jefferson like ways i mean seriously i mean i think he's a um not only an entrepreneur innovative um creative unbelievably bright man he seems to be someone who believes in personal expressions and individual liberties and freedoms and the adherence, whether he knows it or not, or whether he thinks about it or not, to our Constitution. I mean, he's not a Native American, but it's just so interesting that a guy like that, because what have we talked about? What have we talked about for a long time, Rev? I mean, if this um, if this celebration of America first and national sovereignty and our national sovereignty basically identifies with this um the right for people to pursue their dreams and and live their lives without government intervention it seems to me if you ask elon musk or you're a conservative or a liberal he'd probably say i I don't know i mean i don't think much about that because we've got so many boxes that we must put checks in i mean is he an 80 percenter or is he a 90 percenter or is he only a 65 percenter he seems to me to be an incredibly bright um pragmatic realist intelligent realism is kind of the two words i think of when i think of elon musk but historically our party our movement has had to it's been almost required that you express some religious fundamentalism in what you believe and how you believe it there's a god in heaven we're subservient to that god in heaven i've never heard musk um, say two cents worth about that i've never heard peter Thiel say much at all about that i mean they're they're they're, they're friends and their foes I mean, they, they both write very explicitly about this, you know, relationship they have. And it goes back to PayPal and uh, I guess their days at Stanford. And Don't you think you'll learn something about Musk when we see what his plan is with Twitter? Yeah, and I don't know that we'll see his plan. I mean, he, he's the kind of guy that operates in a way that, well, I mean, people like me, I can't speak for you. People like me don't understand. You know what I mean? He's flying at not 35. He's flying at 70,000 feet. But I'm really interested to see what we see. Well, I mean, does he does he does he put himself on the board? Does he put himself at another person on the board? I mean, is this a um, is this an attempt to um, force Twitter to be more um, less censoring of people they disagree with? I mean, it seems to me that that's where we're headed here. And um, but he's got the one thing that most of us will never have, and that is the sort of money it takes to move the meter. I mean, what have we said over and over again about America First? You want to make America First a serious political movement that really moves the meter, and it and Breitbart celebrating a, a, you know, a rally where 10,000 people game, but rather somebody putting a billion bucks in the bank? I mean, that's the key here. I mean, if Musk spends $2.9 billion buying Twitter stock, what have we spent $2.9 billion changing American politics? We, we may not like that. We, we may find that so offensive and so bothering that, that we've got to, you know, we've got to win. That's what I don't like about politics is all the money. Well, I mean, you can't change it. So what does Musk do? 
Musk knows the only way to change Twitter. He didn't say, hey, Jack Dorsey, can you grab a cup of coffee with me? And let's see if we can agree to disagree and maybe hash. I mean, Musk knows how these people are. So, so what does he do? I mean, I, you know, did Twitter know that Elon Musk was trying to buy $2.9 billion worth of, uh, of Twitter stock? I don't have any idea. I mean, if you're a smart guy and you're employed by Twitter and he tweets these things about your company, you got to be real leery and aware of it because he's the kind of guy. I mean, you got to know that he's got a couple of hundred billion bucks laying around somewhere. Now, he doesn't have the money. I mean, I would imagine there will be another filing where he sold, you know, either Tesla or SpaceX stock to generate the $2.9 billion in proceeds it takes to, you know, um, unless he got some broker that does a stock swap. Can you imagine that? Hey, can we do a stock swap? Can you sell, you know, this many shares of my stock and buy that many shares of their stock? Uh, I have no idea how that world works, and you don't either. I mean, some of you may, but most of you have no clue about how that um, sort of world works. But does he or does he not, you know, stop there? Does he try to buy another 10%? Does he end up being 20% owner of a company as big as Twitter and have an adverse opinion or, or an opposite opinion to the orthodoxies of Twitter? I mean, does he... Um, he can be the Carl Icahn well, I mean, of their for, board, He right? can force Jake Dorsey to be, you know, in, in a very secondary role. Sure he could. And that's why I think a lot of people like Carl Icahn is, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't get on the board to try to go along and to get along. I mean, Musk doesn't appear to me to be the kind of guy to buy 9% of a company or nearly 10, 9.2% of a company just to say, hey, I own a lot of Twitter stock. Yippee. I mean, you know, let me participate in some of these um, debates. No, it seems to me that he's a, he's a guy very calculating and, and very committed. And, and where it goes from here, I don't have any idea. But it is interesting that this morning, the SEC, not the Southeastern Conference, the Secure and Exchange Commission announced that he owns now or bought um, $2.9 billion billion dollars worth of twitter stock and owns 9.2 percent of the company that's got to be enough to get you a seat on the board i mean it really does now, now you still can get outvoted but can you begin one of these um hostile takeovers of a board i mean icon there have been books written about this rjr nabisco you know keepers of the gate or guardians of the gate or something there's a book out there uh, about that about you know rjr nabisco and um, some of these bean count, but Musk is not a bean counter, Rev. I mean, he's got a lot of beans to count, <laughs> but he's not a bean counter. I mean, he's an engineer, he's an entrepreneur, he's an innovator. He is indeed the modern day Renaissance man. I mean, he sincerely, sincerely is. And I mean, as much as we know, Teal is a part of America first because Teal has expressed, you know, his support of America first. Um, boy, if Teal and Musk would fall to the fold. You know, on the last day of uh, football signing day, you know, this kid decommitted from Alabama and committed to Florida State, this five-star kid. I mean, imagine, I mean, Teal's in the fold. I mean, you've asked me before, listeners have inquired, you know, who's the most important guy in the movement? And I still argue Teal. Why do I argue Teal? Because he's got billions of dollars. He doesn't have as much as Musk has, but he's got plenty. I mean, he's got enough to move the meter. And, um, and I, I just think it's up to us. I mean, when I look at Teal and Musk or Musk and Teal, um, one is in the camp, the other may or may not be in the camp. I think he's with us more times than he's not. I mean, would you agree to that? M most of the pronouncements he makes seem to be. He seems to be yeah. more in in line with you know personal liberties and freedoms. And um, now he did. Um, th there are some things about him that make me believe that that uh, socially he's not 
anywhere near as conservative as most of us probably wish he was. And I'm talking about folks down in the South because we do have this religious fundamentalism about our political beliefs and, and leanings and biases. And, um, and that's been rooted in the Republican Party. Uh, is Musk a declared Republican or declared Democrat? I don't have any idea. Uh, I would argue he's probably a little of both or a little of neither. Um, he's kind of an island, and he, and he exists as that island. But he's a um, he's got Wall Street on edge. I went to CNBC during the last segment. It's front and center. You know, Musk buys. Good. Uh, yeah, wh- where do we I go from it. here? Where do we go from here? Um, Jamie Dimon said one of the biggest moments of the last 10 years in, um, in investing in Dimon's a J.P. Morgan guy. Dimon was giving a speech at one of these um, – one of these rich guy and rich lady seminars they have early Monday morning and the news broke and Diamond was asked by a member of the media and he was like, yeah, I mean, that's a big deal. I mean, if Elon's done that, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, and we'll see where it goes from here because once again, he's expressed concern about Twitter's censoring a certain content and, um, and not so much on the others. I want to go to this story because I think it's very interesting. We've not talked at all about it. Um, and that is... Um, the situation in Ukraine, is it Buka, Ukraine, B-U-C-H-A, maybe Butcha, maybe like Murdoch and Murdoch, depends on where you are. Um, but B-U-C, I, I pronounce it Buka, that may be um, not the correct way, but it's in Ukraine. They have um, they have gone down, and it's just outside of Kiev. They have gone there, um, and there are these, these mass graves. I mean, there are people uh, blindfolded. There are people with rags wrapped around their arms as if they were handcuffed. They've been slaughtered. And this um, is where the Russians have retreated. Correct. And now the Ukrainians have gone back in, and they're finding bodies just all over I mean, the it, place. It, it, I mean, it, there's no question oh. these are war crimes. Uh, it is committed by the Russian forces. Um, the European Union announced this morning, for what it's worth, the European Union condemns in the strongest possible terms the reported atrocities committed by the Russian armed forces and a number of occupied Ukrainian towns that have now been liberated. So, yes, the Russians have withdrawn from these villages. Um, the Ukrainian soldiers go in and see. Uh, I think it's upwards of 300 residents were slaughtered, murdered, um, innocent civilians. These aren't military uh, men and women. These are just civilians. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's just, you know, it, it really stirs the soul. Um, the European Union is now announcing uh, another round of sanctions this makes it even more complicated to be where I am as kind of a non-interventionist and opposing American imperialism and the, the attempted exporting of American values and democracy as many, many, many support. We have a, a conundrum in this country about what to do, what not to do. But when you see innocent people blindfolded, bound by rags and, and wire ties and handcuffs that have just been slaughtered and dumped in empty graves, doesn't seem to be uh, any age I mean, everybody's in everybody's fair game. There is no limits to age groups or or ethnicities or religions or any any sort of thing. Like it makes it hard. I mean, it really and truly makes it much more difficult to see those sorts of images. And that's kind of what the media wants you to do because we believe, or I do. I can't speak for for you out there listening to my voice. I believe that the media is hell bent on escalating. Um, the, the the seriousness of this event and America's potential involvement or not, uh, it's just kind of what we've done over the last generation or two. Anytime we get a chance to try and increase the likelihood that American military might become more and more involved, we do that. Um, 
but it is hard. It's hard to see these visuals and these images and not be caught up in. We can't stand idly by and allow that to happen. The strategy I'd probably employ, uh, nobody's asked me, but I'm Joe Scarborough, right? Um, Joe said I'm leaving the Republican Party, and some nobody asked you, Joe, if you were leaving the Republican Party. Um, nobody gives one iota about my opinions, but I would just continue. I mean, if Putin has a desire to be isolated, then let's isolate Vladimir Putin and Russia from the rest of the world. We've got to figure out a way. I mean, we still got these European Union countries, you know, fanning the flames of uh, green energy plans and green energy deals and to stop being dependent on Russian oil. Um, but then there's China, and that makes but, it a little more difficult. But, 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 well, I mean, it does make it more difficult, Red. But I just, I mean, I, I've read a good bit about this, and I've talked to, to folks who understand it better than I do. China has no desire at all to be isolated. I mean, they want to be a superpower. They want to be the preeminent superpower. There's nothing they would like more to be the lone and sole superpower. But China understands that, that its intertwinement or entertainment with, with the rest of the world or entanglement with the rest of the world requires them to not be isolated. Um, it seems Putin is desperate. I mean, I'm ready to say that. I mean, it does seem to me that Vladimir Putin, as a 70-year-old former KGB agent and dictator of a nation, seems to be, um, he seems to have self-evaluated and concluded that, yes, I'll never, ever be accepted amongst, you know, global leaders and officials and, and dignitaries, and I'm okay with that. But he's, I mean, he's, he's basically forcing the rest of the world to isolate the Russian people in a way that, the Russian people never imagined, never envisioned. Um, can Russia be a freestanding country? I don't think it can. Um, can can the Western world? And I guess this is where diplomacy comes in. And um, you got to be careful here. But can the rest of the world convince China that your allegiance better not be with Russia? I mean, I understand strategy, and I understand the strategic alliance. And we talked about the um, the, the 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 no limit deal that Xi and Putin made, and they didn't bump into one another, you know, and just all of a sudden say, hey, would you like to sign this? Yeah, I've been thinking about that. I mean, this is unbelievably thought out and orchestrated and designed, but I don't know. With clarity, I want to say that again. I don't know if Xi ever imagined or if the Chinese leadership ever imagined that Putin would go this far. Because when you look at the Russia-Chinese arrangement, the Russian-Chinese arrangement and then you look at mass graves and 300-some-odd innocent people just being brutally slaughtered. I, mean, it, I can't imagine they'd want any part of that. I, I just don't. I, I don't, Rev, and that's what I'm saying. And once again now, um, that, to me, that's a, a kind of an intelligent realism that, that if you're China and you know the only place you hold in the world today is the world's manufacturing plant, and if the world doesn't allow you to manufacture, you become... Um, very isolated because of your communist regime and your, um, your your lack of human rights. And, I mean, we know what the Western world embraces and what the Eastern world has historically um, not embraced. But it's just um, someone said it best uh, this morning I read. It's, uh, there has to be a response. I mean, some of these crimes cannot remain unanswered. Uh, what sort of response is that? Uh, military against military, that's called a war. Whether it's provoked or not, it's still called a war. When innocent people are mowed down in their villages and towns and homes um, and dumped into mass graves and bound and blindfolded and, and slaughtered like animals, I mean, that, 
there has to be some sort of response. Um, those crimes cannot remain unanswered. I'm just sure I don't know. Nah, I'm sure I don't know what needs to be done or doesn't need to be done in regards uh, to that. So, so, yeah, I'm still a non-interventionist. I still believe the less involvement we have in those two countries' affairs, the better off the American people are, the better off the Western world will be. But but when you see these human atrocities and it involves innocent citizens, um, I would argue, Rev, diplomatically, just further and further isolation. Do you think that that has any influence on our decision makers, our leaders? Well, I mean, I, I don't know how it does point. it. I, I don't know how it does it. I mean, you know, we um we're a nation of people who profess to care about our fellow man. We profess to have an obligation in relation to our fellow man. Um, it's tough. I mean, it's a complicated, complicated matter. Once you see the visuals that they're um that they're playing over the airwaves this morning, but once again. Um, you can't be self-contradicting of yourself. You can't say, well, I mean, the media is trying to fan the flames. The media insists on escalation. But when you see these, there's something different about a soldier or a plane or a helicopter being shot out of the sky or, or, or some military maneuver, you know, committed against another uh, country's military. But there's something about, you know, people just living their lives in villages outside of Kiev. Uh, but but uh, what do we do? I, I don't have any idea. I'm still not. I am absolutely not for any further American involvement. Take a break. Back in a minute. I've never spent a day in my life at war. I mean, I've fought, you know, and then you know, fought family affairs and fought business affairs. But I mean, I, I've never in a million years imagined what it would be like to to find yourself in that situation. I mean, if there's somebody who is listening to my voice who has uh, been in those circumstances, what is protocol? I mean, what are you to do? It seems to me that th- this would uh, represent angry soldiers out of control. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe I'm reading something into this. If they've been directed to kill innocent people, to we slaughter know, do innocent people, don't have any idea. But what is protocol? I mean, when you are a, when you when you're fighting a war and you're a soldier of Russia or Ukraine, let's use this as an example. What's in bounds and out of bounds? I mean, what, what's what's fair game and what's not? Um, I mean, we know that in Vietnam, some of the American soldiers uh, went strayward, you know, went wayward and, and strayed off and did some uh, reprehensible things. Not not a lot, but some some did. Don't have any idea why that happens. Um, do you get scared? Are you intimidated? Are you are you brainwashed? Are you sick and tired of being? I mean, I don't have any idea what it's like to be in that situation. Therefore, I'm not going to say what you should or should not do. There's a couple of questions I would have for those, for anybody who's ever been in that sort of situation or circumstances, what is expected of you? I mean, if you're patrolling a village and your military is in control of that village and there are innocent people walking up and down the streets, I mean, what obligation do you have to those people? What commitment have you made to those people? It seems to me that those people were fair game. I mean, they were bound, blindfold, shot, killed, thrown in a mass grave. I mean, to me, that, that, that reeks of desperation, and it, and it leads me to believe there are angry soldiers that, that are out of control. Are you angry because you hadn't eaten in three days? Are you angry because you don't have enough ammunition uh, to do the job that you've been sent there to do? I don't have any idea. We've heard some of the um, supply chain issues uh, and fundamental warfare issues that the Russians have had in regards to that. But, um, but what is protocol what are you to do
as a as a Russian soldier if you're abiding some of the Geneva, Geneva Convention and war crime docu, uh, declarations. Uh, I don't have any idea. I mean, we do service um, Sumter. There's a large, large military influence in Sumter, uh, which Shaw Air Force Base. So I got to believe somebody listening has more clarity than I do. Maybe they don't know exactly uh, what is and what ain't. But if you're on the ground um, just outside of uh, Kiev, Ukraine, and you're slaughtering innocent people, is that because the Russian military leadership um, condones it and says, yeah, do it? I mean, it's terror. I mean, you know that. Right. I mean, it, it's terrorism is what it is. And it's got to be some version of war crime or not. I mean, I, I don't know. Once again, I'm, I'm careful not to go there. Because I think, I, I mean, to me, Rev, I disrespect those who have been in those situations. I mean, if I stand by or sit behind this microphone and say, hey, here's the way it needed to happen. I mean, here's what you needed or what you don't. I mean, there's some radio show hosts that arrogant. I mean, I hear them all the time, what you should have done or what you should not have done, what's expected of you, what's not expected of you. I don't have any military experience. Therefore, I have no idea what you are supposed to do or not. I'd like to believe that most soldiers understand those people pose no risk, therefore you don't kill and throw them in an unmarked grave. Let's go to the phone. Here's David in Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, David. Good morning, sir. How you doing? Hey, David. How are you? I'm doing all right. Just just thinking about, um, you know, what you're talking about and what you've seen. I hadn't, I haven't seen anything this morning on that, but, um, you know, it might, might be the work of the Wagner group, you know, that, that, bloodthirsty group of mercenaries that were sent in there supposedly by Putin to, to uh, you know, get Zelensky, and maybe they never could find him, so that was their their way of, you know, leaving the situation. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be hard-pressed to think that it was regular Russian conscripts that did that. That that looks like something that might have been done, you know, in Syria or Africa or one of these other places. Just hired killers. That's right. That's exactly right. This 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 paid to do anything that have no conscience, have no soul. It's whatever. It all depends on the price they get paid. Interesting. Thank you for the call. Appreciate that. And um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm not going there because I'm not qualified to go there. But we do know that there are private contractors hired by armies all over the world who operate under a different set of rules and standards. And you know, you don't know if they get angry or desperate, or if they've been, as the caller just said, is this is what you're getting paid to do. I mean, is Putin paying, um, you know, some of these hired contractor, hired killers via contract to just go slaughter innocent people in the, nar- in the name, I would imagine, Rev, of fear and terrorism? Let's go to the phone. Barry in Shiraz is next. Hi, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Ken, what if, uh, all right, so we went that way. I'm going to say, what if the Russian soldiers were watching social media and seeing their soldiers being bound and shot in the kneecap? and uh, put, a, uh, put a bag over their head and crushed their face. And they seen social media, so they got angry and lashed out at those people. Mm-hmm. That happened. That happened like two weeks ago uh, where Russian soldiers were bound, shot in the kneecap, uh, let the bleed out, and beat over, the, beat over the head. So, you know, you got, you got a fog of war, too. So, I mean, like you said, you got hungry you got ammunition running shortage. You haven't got, you know, you, maybe your commander's dead. Uh, soldiers go rogue. I mean, that, I mean that happens. It happens. Uh, and you got mercenaries. You got ISIS over there now. You got uh, 
You got all these countries sending people that, you know, some have been trained, some haven't been trained. You got Syria. You, I mean, anything can happen. Sure. So, and, and like the caller said, you know, could it be trying to provoke us? So let's just pray that it doesn't. It's just sad. I think we got, thank you, Barry. Appreciate that. It's, it's horrific. It's sad. It's terrible. I mean, it's inhumane. You, you can't, I mean, even as a non-interventionist, and I've landed there. I mean, I am a non-interventionist Republican. You still, I mean, it, it compels you to want to do something. I mean, there's something that stirs inside of all of us that says, we can't let that happen. I mean, you can't let those innocent people be slaughtered and killed in that fashion and manner. But, but it, I mean, it's war. And, and soldiers do go rogue. And there are people who, I mean, you know, I've always wondered this. For these, um, these cold-blooded killers, these people who get paid, I mean, they're basically government-hired hitmen in, in the weirdest kind of way imaginable. Do they take any joy in that, inflicting that sort of um, pain and anguish and fear and intimidation and death? I mean, do they take any joy or reluctantly do they agree um, to sign the contract and go kill innocent people? Don't have any idea. It's interesting that a lot of you have opinions, and that's what we're here in the business of, um, taking and listening to a variety of opinions. Let's go to the phone. Camp in Florence. Morning, Camp. You're on the air. Hey, how y'all doing? Hey, Camp. How are you? Man, if I complained, I'd be ungrateful. <laughs> um, yeah, man. So, so to say what uh, what they're talking about. Um, sometimes they just get bored. Huh. And uh, I mean, you know, I was in the Marine Corps, and uh, I mean, sometimes they just get bored. Um. Anyway, thank you, Camp. Appreciate that. I hope that's not the case. I mean, yeah, I I would imagine. Um, and I guess you get. I mean, I I had an older gentleman in my life at one time, and he got caught up in the Battle of the Bulge, and he starts telling me these stories, and I am like, I mean, I'm just like a kid at the you know what I mean, Rev. I'm just waiting on every next word he utters. I want to hear. I mean, it's so genuine and sincere and authentic. I mean, he's there, and and it's almost like I'm there with him. And I'll never forget one thing he said. I said, well, what do you do when this, or what do you do when that, or what do you do when you get to this point? He said, son, at some point, you just stop giving a damn. I mean, somebody's going to die. A lot of people are going to die. You figure out a way for it to be everybody but you. And I've never forgotten that. That was years and years and years ago. This man has since died. But I tell you, he was a retired man from the military, and he drove trucks for us. You know, he would we'd pick him up. We'd pay him 40 bucks or 50 bucks to drive a, a truck to Sumter or whatever. And um, and he started telling me these stories. And I am just sitting there, I mean, just I mean, just infatuated with him telling these stories. And I'll never forget, this 25, 30 years ago. Mm. But he said, sooner or later, you just stop giving a damn and you know a lot of people are going to die, and you figure out a way for it to be everybody but you. <sighs> Let's go to the phone. Tony in Calhoun County listening to WTQS in Orangeburg. Hey, Tony. Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken, have you ever looked up the Azov Battalion or Azov Regiment, A-S-O-V? I, no, sir, I have not, Tony. Uh, the Azov Regiment uh, was fo- formed in 2014, the same year that um, Hunter Biden got on the payroll of Brisma that you know, we overthrew their government. Um, if you look up pictures of them, ASOV, it's, it's named after the Azov Sea. But um, you'll see them with pictures with NATO flags, an actual World War II swastika flag, and some higher regimental or country flag. 
And they're all doing the Roman salute, which is where Hitler got his, you know, the stiff arm salute from. So they're, they're doing the actual, I mean, they're skinheads. They're literally a group of skinheads. And they, they were formed in Mariupol, you know, the city that was recently just demolished. Mm-hmm. Um, from 2014, they've been shelling the DPR and the Donets. Uh, they've been killing Russians who were communists in the, in the Donetsk DPR region. Um, and the media hasn't talked about it. You know, they've been slaughtering Russians. So when Putin originally said, you know, now that I'm here, you know, we're going to you know, get our land barrier back and we're going to denazify Ukraine. That's what he's talking about. So his indiscriminate shelling of, you know, Mariupol and killing it is him killing the Nazis in his viewpoint, because that's where the Azov Battalion originates from. Tony, do we know how big the Azov Battalion are? I mean, do we do we have any idea how many people are members of this uh, no, of this organization? I, I don't know. They started out as just a group, and um, in 2014 they were accepted into the Ukraine military officially. Um, but there are three other three other battalions or regiments which are Nazis. Uh, so you might want to look that up because um, to me it's just retaliation for you know what the Nazis have done to the Russians. Um, so it, it's terrible that people are dying on either side, but no one's talking about the damage and the death that Russia, the Russian people in the DPR have experienced over the last eight years. Interesting. Thank you, Tony. Appreciate that. I did find an article as he's speaking, and I'm listening. I'm Googling as well. Um, after its integration into the Ukrainian National Guard, amid discussions in the U.S. Congress about designating the Azov movement a foreign terrorist organization, Ukraine's then minister of internal affairs, Arsen Avakov, uh, defended the unit. This, uh, the shameful information campaign about the alleged spread of Nazi ideology amongst Azov members is a deliberate attempt to discredit the Azov unit and the National Guard of Ukraine. Um, that is via, that's a CNN article. So the news has touched on that. Let me see when this article was, uh, this would be kind of interesting to me, uh, March 30th, just a couple of days ago. And tell us about some of the neo-Nazi history uh, that has been exploited. I guess exploited by Vladimir Putin and convincing some of the Russians there is a Nazi element within Ukraine. Didn't we say a couple of days ago or a week or so ago, this is much more complicated than meets the eye? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we all agree to that. I mean, you know, we, we I, I just gave a, an example of something that's happening. And we've had five people call in with five different opinions. Nobody's sure of their opinion. Uh, that they're contributing in some way, uh, shape, or form to this conversation we're having. But but I, I've not heard anybody say, well, I know it's this or I know it's that. M- most of our listeners have said what? Have we considered this or it could be that? And um, and to me, that's the best way to go about these sorts of situations. Um, and, and, I, and I guess, Rev, when I hear someone say, well, anybody knows or everybody knows um, this is the case or that's the case. Um, We're learning every day. I mean, we really are. We're learning every day about some of the Ukrainian culture. And I think I posed the question, you know, several weeks back. Um, I trust the Ukrainians more than I do the Russians, but I still don't trust the Ukrainians. I'm sorry. I mean, I just don't. Uh, American treasure, to me, is much too valuable to be lost in parts of the world where, where, where the simple analogy is they're better than the Russians. You know, that, that's really and truly, if you asked most Americans what they know about Ukraine and Russia, you know what they would say? Ukraine's the good guy, Russia's the bad guy. 
If you asked a follow-up, how do you know that? There would be a hesitation, and then there would probably be, well, I heard it on the radio, or I saw it on television. I would say I read it, but that's too much work. I mean, as long as somebody's telling you something, I mean, you can be lazy and lackadaisical and be informed in that way. And I guess, you know, the point I've always tried to make is when we decide to intervene or not in some of these affairs, we normally do it with a very, very casual understanding of exactly what we're getting ourselves into. And I think that's why we failed miserably in our endeavors of foreign affairs that, that has gotten so many innocent Americans killed in the name of what? I mean, I'll ask that question. In the name of what? I mean, honest, honestly, or excuse me, obviously, that there's great honor in dying serving your country. That goes without, I mean, there is great honor, fundamental honor in going where you're told and doing what you're told in the name of your country's military. But was it worth it? I'd argue no. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. I meant that I was not going to talk about Ukraine and Russia today, but when you see those visuals, I mean, it stirs you, man. It, it really gets, it makes it hard. I mean, if you're somebody who believes that ultimately we have a responsibility to police the world, and, and it is our job to, to, to intervene in all of these foreign places because the world is dangerous. And when America's absent, it's even more dangerous. I, I mean, I understand that argument. I think history shows that it's wrongheaded and it's, uh, it never comes with good outcomes. But I certainly understand the logic behind the argument. Um, I tend to be a practical man. And practically speaking, I don't know that those sorts of things have worked out in our favor. And ultimately, in that kind of what we're about is our favor um, but when I see those visuals and images, it does stir the soul. I mean, it makes you want, want to pound the table and do something to save innocent life. Um, but we don't have any idea who those people are. I mean, they appear to be innocent civilians. Um, just got introduced to an Azov regiment that I knew nothing about. I actually read a little bit during the break. We'll try to know a little more. The, the, the point I'm trying to make, we, we all come into these situations um, somewhat ill-informed or not informed uh, by most accounts, you folks listening to my voice have chosen to be, I mean, believe it or not, you're in the 1%. I mean, you, you are really and truly, if you're listening to my voice today, that means you've taken, um, I don't know, you've made a choice to be a little more informed that there's probably something out there more entertaining, but maybe not quite as informative. You've chosen to be informed over being entertained. We hope we do. Uh, so some, um, some variety of entertainment here on Wake Up Carolina, but but you choose to listen to some of these conversations. You choose to try and understand whether the host knows what he's talking about or not. Sometimes he does, sometimes he does not. Guess what? If you listen to Beck and Bongino and Hannity and Levin, sometimes they know what they're talking about, sometimes they don't. There's a couple of these guys who make you believe they know everything about everything. They don't. They say certain things with self-assuredness, that's all they're doing. Maybe they're trying to convince themselves that they are experts at all things. I know better. Um, but but I've landed because of my practical way of thinking and surmising that intervention is just not worth it. It's not in America's best interest. Take a break. Back in a minute. It's time for our Takes Mondays to make Friday's Pepsi of Florida's trivia question. Winner gets a six-pack of Pepsi product. Takes Mondays to make Friday's Pepsi a Florence t-shirt thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Tonight is a game between Blue Bloods. 
North Carolina's won six national basketball championships. Kansas has won three. They played against one another in the 1957 national championship game. Who was the coach of the North Carolina Tar Heels when they won the 1957 national championship over the Kansas Jayhawks? Hmm. 843-661-0937. Kansas has won three. North Carolina's won six. They played against one another in 1957. Who was the coach of the North Carolina Tar Heels when they beat Kansas in 1957? 843-661-0937. Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? Frank McGuire. Frank McGuire, you're right. Frank McGuire coached North Carolina to the 1957 National Championship over the Kansas Jayhawks. Who this is, who is this and where are you calling from? This is John. I'm in Florence. Thank you, John. Appreciate you listening. Uh, yeah, that's kind of an interesting trivia question. If I'm not mistaken, I probably am, but Chamberlain may, Will Chamberlain may have played. Now, he was at San Francisco. Now, it's Bill Russell. I need to look that up. I think I'm, there's some connection between McGuire and Wilt Chamberlain. We'll talk tomorrow. Enjoy your day.